Radio Mano Papachango. coming to you a little late this week a couple reasons one you may hear already my uh, voice is kind of fucked has been for a couple weeks now I had this chest cold that just won't let go it's like there's some sort of squid in my lungs Uh, anyway so uh, that and then also I was up in the in the Sierra's this last weekend, I just came down uh, yesterday, which was Tuesday. Today's Wednesday, June something, June 7th. Damn, time flies. Anyway, um, so just got back to L.A. and uh, am getting to back in the saddle, as it were. Uh, I'll only be here a few days, and then I'm going down to Costa Rica for a week at a place called Rhythmia, which is uh, the world's only medically licensed ayahuasca clinic. I'm going to do a podcast with the director, I believe, maybe the medical director. I'm not sure uh, which. We'll see when I get down there. Um, But uh, Kyle Tierman, the pro surfer I had on a few episodes back, knows the people down there and... um, uh, I expressed some interest and he reached out to them and they um, offered to fly me down and have me stay there for a week and check it out in exchange for doing a podcast, which I'm happy to do. It's an, it's an issue I'm interested in anyway. Um, no restrictions on what I say. If I think it's a shithole, I'll tell you it's a shithole. Um, I don't think it is, but, um, you know, that's a... I'm a big fan of transparency, and I want you to always feel that I'm straight with you as to uh, what's going on on my end of the microphone. So that's what's going on. I'm going down there for a free fucking trip to Costa Rica. I've never been to Costa Rica, so that'll be fun. Uh, And then I get back to L.A., crash for a few hours, and then I get on a plane to Europe. I'm flying into Amsterdam uh, my buddy Martin's going to pick me up at the airport and we're going to drive from Amsterdam to Barcelona together, which I think is like a 12 hour drive, something like that. So that'll give us a chance to catch up. I'll be in Barcelona for 10 days, um, dealing with some stuff there and seeing some friends I haven't seen for a long time. And then I'll be back in L.A. early or at the end of the month and uh, be in here for a couple of weeks. And then mid-July, if things go as I hope they will, uh, I'll be hitting the road in the van and coming come your way, wherever you are, if you're in North America. A um, couple things that are, that are scheduled to tell you about, I'm going to be at... A thing called the Floyd Fest, which is in Floyd, Virginia. It's a music festival. Uh, they've invited me to 
to come hang there. Uh, sort of an unpaid thing, but they're going to hook me up with, uh, you know, VIP camping area. I'm going to have my van there, I guess. And, um, uh, you know, food and stuff like that. So it's not like I'm doing, I'm a performer. I'm just going to be hanging out there and as an invited VIP in Spain, they say VIP. VIP. Uh, so I'm going to be a VIP and, um, it looks like I'm going to do a live podcast recording with uh, Michael Franti there. So uh, from Spearhead, uh, if you are a regular listener, you know that I'm a huge fan of Michael Franti and Spearhead. So that's the main attraction for me, getting to meet him and hang out. Uh, the organizers seem to be really cool. They listened to the podcast and uh, reached out to me. So that sounds wonderful. Probably meet some other musicians, maybe some uh, some artists and writers and whatnot. Um, so I'll be there late July. Look it up. Floyd Fest uh, in Floyd, Virginia. And uh, then the other thing that I've booked for this summer is Duncan Trussell asked me to do a live podcast with him at the annual float conference in Portland. So I'm going to be there, uh, Portland in August. I think it's the weekend of the 13th, 14th, 12th, somewhere in there. Uh, check your calendar, consult your calendar. And uh, if you're in Portland or in that part of the world or you're into floating, you might want to check out that conference. It's like the it's the big float conference in North America that happens every year. And I've got a bunch of friends in the floating community. Kevin Johnson, you may remember, I've done a couple of podcasts with him. He designs and builds float chambers uh, and is also a very serious cave explorer. Interesting, a nice connection there. Silence, darkness, solitude, confrontation with, you know, fear. Um, also a great musician and just a super cool guy. So hopefully I'll be seeing Kevin there and uh, and his wife Carol, who's also a great musician, really cool person. Anyway, there are a lot of cool people in the float community, as you can imagine, um, just because of the nature of the activity itself. So that's in Portland, uh, August 12th, 13th, whatever. And then I hope to catch the, the eclipse. There's a full solar eclipse happening in North America on August 21st. So if you're into eclipses, or even if you think you might be, it's an opportunity to be in the path of a total solar eclipse, which is a very uh, mind-altering experience. So Google that if you're in North America, uh, because it sort of enters in Oregon, goes across Idaho, Wyoming, then just sort of uh, southeast across the Midwest, and then I think down into Alabama, Georgia. So it's pretty much across the whole country. So with uh, a little bit of driving, you can be in the path of uh, the total shadow, which means it will go from bright daylight to absolute dark night in a few minutes. Uh, there's a great book called The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon, uh, one of my favorite books of all time, written by Andrew Weil, who was on this podcast, one of the very first episodes. And um, he talks, each chapter in that book is about a different mind-altering uh plant or uh, experience. 
So there's a chapter on marijuana and mushrooms and um, cocaine and all these different things. Uh, and there's, I think it's the final chapter is about a solar eclipse, which in different cultures changes consciousness in different ways. And he, he's very interesting about how different cultures um, have interpreted an eclipse. You know, the, the, the moon is eating the sun or, uh, you know, this, uh, the shamans have used eclipses because one of the great powers of the Mayan calendar and uh, different cultures that figured out uh, who were working on calendars is that they could predict eclipses. And so if you can predict an eclipse, you can really freak people out, <laughs> you know, because they're so rare. Uh, if you can say, you know, in three weeks, the sun is going to dim in the middle of the day. People are like, what are you talking about? And then it happens like, oh, shit, better listen to them. Anyway, so uh, if you get a chance to see the full eclipse, that's a pretty special experience. All right. Uh, let's see. This this episode is with Tom White. Now, Tom White is one of these people's one of my favorite types of episodes because it's one of these guys who, um, you know, I was visiting a friend in Topanga and he she introduced her dad and, um, you know, just a sweet guy. And uh, he and I chatted a little bit and I immediately saw like this guy. Wow. What he's had a really interesting life. He's hung out with uh, rock and roll bands. Uh, I guess he's probably in his 70s now, I guess. Um, and he was right there, maybe late 60s. He he looks young and he's happy and, you know, healthy. And um, But he's clearly a guy who was sort of there in the height of the hippie scene in Los Angeles. And then uh, 1968, he moved to Amsterdam and lived for years in Amsterdam and um, learned Dutch late in life. And, uh, you know, he's just one of these guys. He's a quiet guy sitting in the corner, but you start talking to him and holy shit, what a life this guy's living. He's been all over the place, done all sorts of interesting things, uh, you know, had near-death encounters several times, you know, wrestled a bear. He, he tells that story about wrestling the bear and uh, all sorts of uh, adventures. He's not famous. He's not somebody you're going to, you know, you will have heard of before. But I really enjoyed this conversation with him. And, uh, and you know, he's not a public figure. So, uh, you know, to sit down with a microphone could be a little intimidating, a little weird. Um, but he was very kind and generous with his time and, and sharing his life story. So I really, um, I hope you enjoy this episode. I, I really did. Um, I just listened to it now, in fact, uh, to remind myself of what a fascinating dude this is. I had to edit. You'll hear some, some breaks in the editing because he had a cough and I, um, we got phone calls and so it's, there's a little bit of a disjointed feel in parts, but, um, it's not too bad. Hopefully speaking of editing, uh, when I was driving down from the Sierras the other day, I was listening to podcasts, uh, and, uh, I heard some really good ones. I heard, uh, I heard, uh, Kevin Bacon on, uh, Mark Marin's what the fuck. That was, uh, really interesting. What a cool, smart guy, a really smart guy. I, 
didn't realize how uh, together he is. Um, I listened to Al Franken on uh, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, which was great. Al fucking Franken should be president. And uh, but it was funny, you know, there was a moment in that podcast where they were talking about all the drug use on Saturday Night Live when he was there in the 70s. Everyone was doing a lot of cocaine. And and she said something like, of course, you you kept your distance from all that. And he said, no, no, I did lots of drugs. I was a into the Grateful Dead when I was young. I did lots of LSD. And then I did, the, you know, smoked a lot of pot and blah, blah, blah. And then she was just like, so anyway, uh, John Belushi, she just went right past it. And it, you know, I, I like Terry Gross. If you listen to Fresh Air, you know, she's a really good interviewer. She She's very uh, sort of the opposite of my style in the sense that she researches her guests exhaustively. She's very well prepared, whereas I just sort of wing it. Um, but she... Uh, is so fucking straight that she just let the opportunity to talk about his drug use go right by. This is a sitting U.S. senator who just said, yeah, I did a lot of acid and smoked a lot of weed. And you don't talk about that? You don't talk about how that affects his sense of uh, drug laws how what did he learn from it what does he think about hallucinogens versus other kinds of drugs i mean that's a huge issue uh to talk with anyone about i would say you know any sort of creative person but certainly uh a u.s senator i mean 20 years ago 10 years ago nobody i mean i can't think of any other politician in American political life who has admitted publicly to the use of hallucinogens. I think that's the first time I've ever heard that. And she just, it just went pie. So it, it made me think about how, you know, being straight, square, conventional, uh, is this self reinforcing worldview because you hear something that is outside of that. And it's, it's like, you didn't hear it. You know, I, when sex of Dawn came out, I was doing interviews everywhere and fresh air was kind of, um, a natural, uh, you know, like it, it was sort of, everyone was expecting that I would do an interview on fresh air. And I heard from the bookers and people who, who arrange those sorts of things that, uh, it wasn't going to happen because she's not comfortable talking about sex. It's like, you know, you're, you're doing a national show and like sex is a huge part of life. So you're going to eliminate sex and drugs from your show. Like what's left? Uh, anyway, uh, I guess I should say on that note that, um, there's also some, I've been talking to some people about, uh, possibly taking this podcast to television not network television, but sort of like everything but TV. So um, internet based and, and all that kind of stuff. I can't talk about any details because it's all very hush hush. And there's a, a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, but people have approached me really good people uh, who would basically want me to just keep the style of the podcast, the, you know, 
sort of what I'm complaining about with Terry Gross, the the total openness to whatever the fuck we want to talk about style, which I wouldn't do it if that were compromised in any way. Um, but anyway, there's a possibility that this might be uh, recorded in a studio or, or something before too long. So that's a possibility. And then I've also been speaking with a very serious production company who want to talk, uh, who want to get into maybe doing a, a docu-series, a television docu-series on Sex at Dawn. So there's that interest is sort of, you know, it's never gone away. I hear from these people every couple of weeks, you know, different production companies, uh, filmmakers, um, but it's been sort of a slow simmer over the last few years, and it feels recently like the interest is picking up again. I think it's because media is behind the culture, and the culture has been ready to talk seriously about sexuality for a decade or more, and media being so timid, I'm talking about visual media because the investment is so high that uh, they're, you know, they're scared to lose their money so they don't take risks. But I think, you know, we're seeing now that uh, the culture is ready for it. Transparent is this big series on Amazon about a transgender person, uh, uh, you know, and um, I think it's John Lithgow plays the the part. Fantastic. Uh, and there, you know, there's so many other Orange is the New Black. There's so many examples of shows that are questioning the sort of dominant conventional paradigm of sexuality that have been very well received uh, that I think the powers that be are starting to feel like, uh, well, maybe we can do this without losing our shirts. Maybe there's actually a market for intelligent, honest discussion of human sexuality. Ooh, wouldn't that be amazing? Anyway. I'm going to stop talking. Uh, this is Tom White. I really enjoy this. Hope you do. By the way, at the end, he talks about uh, uh, anti-snoring ring that he uh, has. You know, it's uh, I, I don't have people on the podcast normally who are selling stuff other than books or films. So I guess that counts as selling stuff, um, but not normally products. But uh, I left all this in because uh, Tom has a money back guarantee <laughs> and he's a really nice guy and uh, he gave me a ring. I have to you know, say to you in the interest of transparency, I tried the ring. It didn't seem to affect my snoring at all, but um, maybe your results will be better. We'll see if you get one. I'm going to play you out with some of our favorite singer-songwriter Carsey Blanton. Uh, this is from her last record, So Ferocious. And the song is called Lovin' Is Easy. And I think it's a nearly perfect song. See what you think. I'm in love with you it's alright I fall in love nearly every night And it fills up my heart Till I can't keep it in So I hope you don't mind If I say it again I'm in love with you 
with every good poet I happen to meet. Cause loving is easy, it's taking a breath. I do it all day, till the day of my death. I don't wanna own you, you don't have to stay. Just as long as I've known you, I wanted to say, I'm in love with you. Is that a sin? Just look at the state that you got me in. When I think of your hands, of your eyes, of your tongue, I get suddenly foolish and humble and young. 'Cause I'm in love with you, honey. But don't be afraid. I fell in love with the love that we made. It's none of my business if you could love me. You don't have to earn it. I'm giving it free. 'Cause loving is easy. It's taking a breath. I do it all day till the day of my death. I don't wanna own you. You don't have to stay. Just as All right, I'm here at a dining room. Request radio check over. What's that? <laughs> Requesting a radio check? Yeah. I'm here with Tom in Topanga. Tom, what's your last name? White. Tom White. It's easy. It it's is easy. Sounds like an alias. And Tom is white. It's Tom is a white guy. Uh, <laughs> Not in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> in, the, in these uncertain times, yeah, I want exactly. to be careful. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Tom, I, I'll talk about how I met you in the intro, which I record later. But uh, basically, you and I just started chatting the other night, and I thought, well, that guy's leading an interesting life. Unassuming, quiet guy who you start talking to, and suddenly all this interesting stuff comes out. and. Uh, before I turned on the mics, you were talking about almost dying at Dana Point when the first time you went ocean diving, and I didn't even get that on the on the podcast. Foolishly scuba scuba diving in a surfing area. Yeah, that yeah, and then you had to have your sorry ass dragged out. Right, that's the worst. I mean, I I've messed up a bunch of times, and you know whatever, close calls, but. I feel bad when someone else has to risk their safety to drag my ass out, you know, to come get me or that's, that's I was so young. I think at that point that, that never crossed my mind. Really? I was just so glad to be dragged out that I wasn't thinking about anybody else. Yeah. Or... yeah. I, I got pulled. I was in uh, Zipolite, Mexico, uh, which is down near Puerto Angel, near in Oaxaca. And I got, I was out body surfing and I got pulled out in a riptide and, um, you know, I knew to swim across it and I did. Right, and, at an angle towards yeah, the beach. But it just kept, I, I don't know, it must have been really wide and it pulled me out and I was going out around a point and if 
later I'd heard that if I'd gone beyond the point, then then that was it, because there's nobody there. It's you know the remote. Point of no return. The literal point of no return. Yeah, and some Israeli guy saw me and ran out to the point and dove in and swam out and and got me and helped me get back. And uh, then later I learned that Zipolite was, uh, for the native people, it was a place where um, when you were, when you did something really, really bad, unforgivable, you were expected to go down to that beach and swim out and be swept away. And that was the sort of ritual, you know, point of death. And there's all this weird karma there. And, People die there every year because of the riptide. If people have never been and caught in a strong riptide, they don't know how scary they can be. Oh, it's terrifying. Because you think you're a strong swimmer, and yeah. I'll be fine, a little yeah. riptide, but they can just... And you feel yourself weakening, you know, which is the, the scary part. You, you start, then you panic, which of course accelerates the process of weakening, you know, and... Yeah. I almost drowned when I was um, probably four or five being caught in a riptide off Fort Lauderdale where I was vacationing with my grandparents and I had to be saved literally by a lifeguard because it sucked my feet out from under me. So I was, you know, on my back and I was little on the, on the sand being sucked out under the water. Oh, man. Wow. An undertow. And you were four or five? Maybe five. Wow. Could have been six. Interesting that that didn't... Uh deter you from spending time in the water as an adult. You didn't get a, a phobia. That, that's kind of an odd little tale in itself. Um, after that, my grandfather, in his wisdom, decided to teach me how to be a strong swimmer. Because oh, nice. I really Confront didn't want to swim, so I was probably about yeah. five. And so he did that by, we were on a sailboat on Lake Charlevoix in Michigan, and with my mom and my granddad and me, and he was from the old school, the sinker swim school. So he said, now it is time for you to learn to swim. And he picked me up and threw me off the boat. And I sank like a rock. And my mom jumped, no, he jumped in to save me. But I was struggling so ferociously that I was going to drown both of us. My mom had to jump in. <laughs> and because of that, oh, I didn't learn to swim until oh. I was like 10 or 12. Yeah. I was like, yeah, fuck that. My first two experiences, you know, I'm like, screw this. Yeah, yeah. really. So then when you were 10 or 12, then what? how, how did you get into it? I did, it? just picked it up, you know, swimming in lakes and swimming because hmm. friends were going to the pools. And right. then once I got into it, then I started surfing. We actually founded the R RMSA, the Rocky Mountain Surfing Association, <laughs> because we didn't have any surf, but we had surfboards. Why? And well, I mentioned my water skiing champion. Friend. Right, right. He came from a wealthy family, and his dad would lease lakes on farms that had big lakes. So, so he had like private water ski lakes to practice in. Mm. And that's when we got into water skiing and we decided to surf. And we kind of invented wake surfing in the 60s, in the early 60s. Ah, we, so you had actual surfboards and yeah, you were getting towed behind. Yeah, I had a 10 foot, 6 inch Hobie, a big uh -huh. longboard, you know. Right. And what we would do is we'd get everybody in the back of the boat on one corner and throw a nice wake. And then we'd just use water ski tow ropes and be on the surfboard and pull ourselves onto the 
wave. Did you have something to hold your feet or you no, just gripped it? just wax. Yeah, yeah. Just gripped it like surfing. And yeah. it actually was the best surfing I ever had because you could go around and around the lake yeah. and the wave never broke. You're just riding the same wave You could ride the it time. for 15 minutes. Yeah. So you could go further out and coaster in. How'd you get up? That's always the problem with water skiing. On skis or on well, the surfboard? on the surfboard. I guess you could just stand yeah, the on just, the yeah, surfboard the boat, the and start off stopped slow. And you right. know, I, maybe we, maybe yeah. I think we just did it standing. It can, yeah. Or maybe we started kneeling and then stood uh, up. But yeah. It was pretty easy. They start out slow and yeah. you get going. And that and, sounds like that actually be a really good way to learn to surf because you get the like basic balance down. And you it's know, not choppy, and, and there's not out. weird yeah. things or people cutting you off. Right. Or, right. Wow. Huh. Actually, I would love to learn to surf that way. That's a very controlled environment. The lake is totally, uh, you know, if it's not choppy. And then on, on um, <clears throat> summer break, spring break, we'd strap the surfboards to the top of somebody's car and drive out here and surf Cabrillo Beach and Malibu and, you know, mm. Hermosa. And so all. you grew up in Colorado? I grew up in Colorado, but I did live in Playa del Rey, and I lived in Redondo Beach as my mom was moving back and forth after, uh, during a divorce. Right. So you knew the, the sort of beach life, the <clears throat> beach, cult, beach culture was in your uh, experience already. Oh, yeah. I loved it. You knew it was out here. You ever see a film called Surf Wise? Have you heard of that? No. There's a guy uh, from around that same era. I forget his name, but my cousin's a surfer, and he said the family's pretty well known. They've got the surf school in San Diego now or something. But it, it was a documentary about this guy. He was a doctor. Um, he was based in Hawaii. He loved to surf. Uh, he worked in the Navy or something, and then he didn't get some promotion he was expecting. This is like in the, I think, uh, late 50s, early 60s. And um, he had some problem with a woman and whatever. He just had one of those moments in life where he just said, the hell with this. And he quit his job and he took a surfboard and he went to Israel because he wanted to spend 80 days and 80 nights in the desert. Like, I guess it was Jesus and, you know, have a vision and figure out what he was going to do with the rest of his life. I think it was 40. 40 days and 40 nights? Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, and it was probably <laughs> Moses. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not a biblical scholar. But anyway, so he went and he, uh, he did that. He went into the desert and did his vision quest. And then he, he was surfing. And no one had surfed in Israel before. So there are all these newspaper articles about him, you know, this guy. And he taught people how to surf. And so he's sort of the godfather of Israeli surf culture. And he had a vision in the desert that he was going to meet a young Mexican woman and they were going to have, I think, eight or nine children together. So he came back to California and he was eating in a Mexican restaurant one night and there was this big family, these Mexicans eating there. And he saw this woman and he just walked over and he said, I saw you in a, in a vision. You and I are going to have eight children together. <laughs> and she's like, who the hell are you? Anyway, they did. The father didn't shoot him? No, no surprisingly. <laughs> there goes your vision. Uh, and they had these kids. And they, but this guy was like very eccentric. Didn't want the kids to like learn this materialist American culture. Good. So they raised the kids in this big camper van. And they just drove up and down the coast. Eight kids? Eight kids in a 20-foot camper 
And he said, you know, you can learn everything you need to learn about life. You can learn from the beach. You can learn from surfing, from the water, from whatever. And these kids didn't go to school. They, so it's the first half of the film is like, wow, what a cool eccentric guy and these, you know, wild kids and, you know, they don't have to go to school. And then the second half is like a, a little more complicated because then the kids are like, well, you know, this this life, it, it's the conundrum of raising your kids for the world as you wish it was versus the world as it is, I think, right. you know, which must be a conundrum. So he raised them for the world he wished it were and, yeah, and then they, they weren't they, totally prepared. Exactly. For yeah. So there were some conflicts and some, uh, you know, repercussions. But uh, it sounds like he was back in the day, back when Vandal's Summer came out. And, uh, that's it, yeah. I remember those kids went to Africa, and they'd never surfing. They'd never even heard of it. And all yeah. of a sudden, these white guys on these boards right in the ways. And I guess the locals picked it up and yeah. with whatever they could find, yeah. a piece of fiberglass, whatever. a tree a branch. Of, yeah. <laughs> So you were, were you raised around Boulder, where you are now, or some, another part of Colorado? No, well, I grew up in, I was born in Chicago, yeah. and my parents were in a perpetual state of divorce. So my mom, looking for happiness, thought that she could find it by moving, you know, the grass is always green, right. this sort of thing. So they, they had a long-term thing, but it was just very rocky? He was an airline pilot, and my sister and I, they had the perfect marriage, and we never knew anything was happening. We were always just told that he was on a layover, uh, or he was going to be flying out of New York for a while, oh, but I they see. were really going through this divorce for years. Mm. And so I moved around, moved to Denver or Dallas for one year, moved to Denver for a year, California, Denver, California, Denver. And then we stayed and I grew up in Denver. And when I graduated high school, I went to Boulder and went to the university there for five years. So what, what years are those? Uh, 63 through 60. Nine. Right. Interesting time to be in university. Sort of the heart of the whole countercultural movement, Vietnam. Did you get a deferment because you were in school? I think that's on Ariel's list. Oh, is it? Yeah, I have a list. <laughs> Tom's daughter, Ariel, who's a friend of mine, sent a list of <laughs> things to make sure to ask dad about. Uh, number one is wrestling with a bear. I don't know. We're going to, I guess we'll get to that at some point. Have you wrestled with a bear? I have wrestled. Or is she it, just bullshitting I, I have, me? No, no. I wrestled a 400 pound <laughs> black bear named Victor. Victor the wrestling bear. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> All right. All right. Well, wait a minute. Let's let's get back to uh, you said it's on her list here. Wait, I should just read the list. This will be funny for listeners to hear the list. We're not going to get to all these. There's no way we're going to get to my draft story. Oh, your draft story. That number six. Deferment. OK. With three stars. Uh, I got a um, I went to see you in 63. My first time really away from home. Right. So I didn't take my studies very seriously. And so after two semesters, they said, you know, we think you should take a semester off and then you can go to summer school and then you can start next year again normally. Well, I was, you know, 2S student deferment. Within two weeks of their decision, I got a 1A. Right. This was in 63. 1A is a draft notice. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. It means you're top of the list. And these were the days, this might have been 64, 
yeah, it was 64. And um, <clears throat> they were giving you two weeks of basic training in Fort Bliss and then sending you to Saigon. Two weeks? Yeah, two weeks in Fort Bliss and wow. off to Saigon. So Fort Bliss, that's ironic. N indeed. Not a lot of bliss. I didn't want to go kill other people, and I didn't particularly want to get killed either. Yeah. Oh, Ariel, just um, she knows we're in the middle of this. <laughs> She's Ariel's in, uh, where is she, in Tahiti or somewhere right Love now? Love you so much. Have fun today, guys. Uh, she's in Micronesia. Micronesia, yeah. So, um, anyway, I took it real seriously. I, first of all, I had had a major hip operation when I was 14. Uh. So I've got a big scar, like a 12-inch scar, maybe bigger. And I thought, well, this will help. And my mom had remarried to a surgeon, so I said, well, can you write a letter or something saying, but he didn't like me. It was one of those stepfather uh, jealousy things. Really? You know? And so he wrote a letter saying I was in perfect shape. What? And in fact, my hip operation was so successful, I should probably be a paratrooper because, which is, you know, 101st Airborne something, because my hip was so strong from the reconstructive surgery. True story, true. That is a literal motherfucker right there. Yeah, he was a complete asshole. Wow. He, um, anyway, so <clears throat> I did have an advantage because I had the scar. And yeah. some friend of mine told me, if you have a scar, no one could tell you what's going on behind it. You can say it hurts all the time. They cannot disprove that. Yeah. So I got an old pair of shoes out of my closet loafers and I put my left shoe in a vise and then I took another pair of shoes to see how my shoes wore you know your individual walking patterns I got a file no I took it to a um, shoemaker and had him put an inch and a half lift on the shoe then I put it in the vise and I filed it so it looked well worn and worn just the other way and when I put it on it gave me a horrendous limp <laughs> Naturally, <laughs> so then the day came. Then I stayed up all night. I tried everything, you know. I drank caffeine and I did drugs. I did everything to possibly miss this. Um, I didn't smoke pot or anything then, so it was probably mostly cigarettes and alcohol. Hmm. Anyway, I went down to take my test, and you go in. You did you ever take one? No. Super humiliating. The first thing they do is make you go in a big room like a gymnasium and strip down to your underpants. And that's, so there's all these guys in their underpants. So I stripped down to mine, but I left my shoes and socks on. And the sergeant came over and he said, well, you have to take your shoe off. And I said, well, what? look at this. And I limped around and I said, if I take my shoe off, I won't be able to walk at all. And so he was like, okay, well, then you can wear your shoe, your corrective shoe. And then I went through the test, and it was really hard to fail most of it because it was so simple, you mm. know. Um, the hearing test, I tried to fail. I pushed the button when I didn't hear something, and when I did hear it, I wouldn't push the button. And the vision test, and but they kind of knew those tricks. Yeah. And then the intelligence test part came, and the intelligence test part I think was impossible to fail if you were had a functioning brain. Like the first question was your name. And I saw people looking over the shoulders of the <laughs> neck guy next to him to get the answer. You know, it's like, so I probably got 100 on that. Then came the big test. And you walked in, and there was a general sitting at this little table with a colonel on each side. 
and everyone was lining the walls, waiting. And one by one, they walked in front of him. This was the day of reckoning. Yeah. And the guy in front of me was like morbidly obese. He was so fat that his fat folded in on itself. You know, he could yeah. kind of dimpling. Right, like a baby. And I, and I thought, well, this guy doesn't have a chance. And he goes and he talks to the general and I'm stamped off to Fort Bliss. And then the next guy in front of me was like, I think he had asthma and glasses like as thick as Coke bottle lenses mm. or bottoms. And um, they took him. So I thought I didn't have a chance, you know. Yeah. And I get in front of the general, and the general says, well, it says here you had an operation, bad limp, blah, blah, blah. I want you to walk to that far wall and back. And a hush fell over the entire gymnasium, 150 people, and there was, you could hear a pin drop. But luckily, I had practiced the limp, so I didn't do it wrong, and I'd practiced it for days. And so I thought, okay, and I limped over, I limped over the wall, and I turned around, and I limped back to the general. And he looked at me and he said, son, I'm afraid we're not going to be able to take you. Mm, what a disappointment. <laughs> so that's what I did. I was like, oh, I really wanted to serve my country, and I'm so sorry. You know? And he said, no, I think the only reason he didn't take me was... I would look bad in formation marching. Right. You know, I don't think he was worried about me. Yeah. But I actually overplayed my hand so well that they sent me to a rehabilitation counselor <laughs> who told me that if I, if I did everything right, I could live a n pretty normal, productive life and live to be 40. A 40? <laughs> there was nothing wrong with me. And they were going to help yeah. me get a job making license plates, I think, or something. Yeah, well, I'm surprised they didn't take you for a desk job or something, you know? No, they take me after the women and children. Oh, <laughs> the cripple. So then after I, I limped out of the building after the rehabilitation yeah. counselor, I was driving an MG at that time, convertible, it was parked. And as soon as I walked down the stairs, I broke into a run. I jumped in my car and rode off. Lucky no one was watching. I don't think they can do anything once the decision's oh, made. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Nicely done. But that was a good story, and it, was, and it saved me. And then I yeah. quickly got back into school and took it seriously. Well, what did you study? I started out as a philosophy major because I've always been into philosophy, and I like to think of myself as a self-styled philosopher. But I realized there was no market for philosophers. Right. So then I studied sociology and psychology and <clears throat> ultimately switched to English literature. Hmm. Do you have a specific area of interest in the literature? Was Shakespeare in the Old Testament. Oh, really? Oh, okay. So 40 days and 40 nights, you know about that. <laughs> well. <laughs> That's Old Testament, isn't it? Um, no, because Jesus wasn't in the Old yeah, Testament. You're right. yeah. And Moses was, I think, 40 years or so. Oh, yeah. Remember, he was promised to the promised land, but he never got to go yeah. there. Well, did, when did the waters part? Wasn't that on the way? Oh, that was the way to Egypt. But then he came right. back, right? For the way out of Egypt. or I don't know. It's, I, I read, actually, I, I've read parts of the Old Testament uh, I read the book of Job. Good book. Yeah. Yeah, quite interesting. Um, you know, just the, the idea that God and the devil were sort of wagering on the, how much torture this guy would put up with 
you know. <laughs> and then I love at the end, so people don't know the story, uh, the devil and God are sitting up there and wherever they are, and uh, God says, you know, behold this guy Job. He believes in me. He worships me. He's He'll do whatever I tell him. Yeah, and the devil says, well, that's just because you've been so good to him. You gave him this hot wife, and he's got all these kids, and he has this great farm with all these flock of sheep. Sheep, yeah. And God says, no, he would worship me even if I took away those things. And the devil says, prove it. So then God like kills all his sheep. And, and Job is like, well, I still love God. I don't care. And then the devil says, yeah, but he still has his wife and his kids. And okay. And then God kills his kids. And Job's like, well, I still love my, my God. And God is wonderful, even though I've lost my children. And then of course, this thing continues, then he kills the wife, and then he burns down the farm, and then in the end, Job is sitting on a, like a pile of ashes, and he's got yeah, boils. rending and his hair. And he's got all these boils, and he's got herpes, and he's like... But he never lost faith. He never lost faith. And he got Sucker. everything back multifold. Well, he got twice as many sheep. Well, see, that's the thing. Twice as many kids, twice as many... Wives, I don't know. I mean, it's a very sort of quantitative... Uh, approach to relationships. The cool thing about the Old Testament, it is such a great anthology yeah. of stories. You know, I mean, you've got beauty, you've got beautiful poetry and like the Song of Solomon, and then you've got these great stories of, you know, Solomon and Bathsheba, yeah. and Samson and Delilah. And, right. But then the New Testament gets pretty dogmatic and rigid. Right. You're right. The Old Testament is an anthology. And it's, it's a and collection it's, of stories. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That, and there's really no... And it's the Torah as well, right? Yeah. The yeah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, right. and Numbers. The well, first five books are the Torah. The Quran is... I mean, Muhammad is... There's an overlap, right? With oh, yeah. The Quran. There were all sons of Abraham. Yeah. Yeah. Judaism, Christianity, and, and Islam. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Crazy how, how much infighting there is now and all that. When, yeah, when we all worship, even Mary is revered by Muslims. Oh, really? Yeah. Do they believe in the virgin birth? She, uh, I don't know if they believe in the virgin birth, but she's in the Quran. Hmm. Yeah. I don't, I don't believe in the virgin birth. I think Mary... Mary was getting some on the side. I was tra traveling in Spain with my sister and her husband and my wife. And she, my sister went to St. Mary's Academy, her whole educational career. Mm. So she was devout. Yeah. And somebody asked if she believed in the virgin birth. And she said, well, of course. She was offended, you know. And Susan, Ariel's mom, who was quite irreverent, really, said... Oh, give me a break. She was raped by a centurion. Could have been, yeah. Right, but my sister didn't want to hear that at yeah, all. Yeah, But no, I don't believe in uh, that. A Spanish nun got in big trouble recently for uh, saying that it was totally rational to question the virgin birth and that she thought that Mary probably had a healthy sex life and that sex is one of the gifts of God and that we shouldn't be, you know, and like, oh my God, that, you know, she's being excommunicated. It's this big hullabaloo that she dared to say that sex is, you know, among the gifts that, that God had given in her. Well, it's kind of a no-brainer if you look around, the whole world exactly. runs on it, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's crazy.
Anyway, so I want to read this list. Okay. So people have a sense. Uh, Wrestling with a Bear. Okay, Victor. We'll, we'll talk about Victor. Popo. Don't know what Popo is. I guess police. Is that what Popo no, is? No, Popo is a big 400-pound um, Mexican fellow that had lost the ability to walk because he was so obese. But there's a whole story about Popo. The Popo story is when I was held um, as a hostage by escaped convict with a gun to my head. <laughs> at age 16. <laughs> age 16. All right, let's get back to I want to try to get, well, let's try to get through the, because the it list itself. An, it has been an interesting life. Yeah. Uh, unbelievably so. All right, well, let's try to, uh, let's get back to that, because we were in your teenage years, I think. Well, no, because that's before we were in college, so we have to get back to that. Squashed when you rescued an old miner by driving him to the ER while tripping. Scaling skyscrapers as a teen, uh, near death at three months old, and again at 13. That would have been the same thing that took my hip. Oh, okay. That's uh, actually a brief tangent. Uh, right, let's do that. Tangent well, yeah, is I was when ask I was three months hip. old, I was diagnosed with osteomyelitis, which is a bone marrow disorder, kind of like bone cancer. Mm. And it was 1945 when I was born, so penicillin had just come around, Mm. the wonder drug, right? So they didn't know what I had, and they didn't know what to do with it. So they put me in the hospital for three months and gave me 500 shots of penicillin. Mm. They gave me one every four hours for three months, which must have been great for my developing immune system, right? I was going to say, yeah, it just wiped you out. Right. So um, that was my first brush with death. And what it did was they gave me a shot every four hours for three months until I'd had 500. And by then, the osteo was so, you know, under attack that it just went and settled in my hip and went lay dormant for the next 13 years. Is that a, is, is the disease a, a infection? Is it a bacterial thing? Yeah, I believe it is. Oh, so and the penicillin actually And they think maybe I got it from a diaper rash or something. Oh, Wow. So you recovered from it, but it lay dormant in your hip and then flared up again at 13? And allowed me to miss the entire eighth grade, which I was in the hospital. But it gave me the scar, kept me out of Vietnam. So what did they, they had to remove? Was it a tumor or growth or something? No, it, it, it's a good question. I guess it was just kind of, you know how your iliac crest is shown? They cut one of those off. So oh. it was, that was infected. So the bone That's, was infected. Yeah. Wow. Exactly. Wow, they cut it off and it didn't affect your, your balance or your movement? Well, the first they said I'd be in a wheelchair for the rest of my life, and I knew that wouldn't be true. And then they said I'd be on crutches for the rest of my life, and then they said I'd walk with a cane for the rest of my life. And then finally, I could be a paratrooper because it was healed so well. <laughs> but it did make me miss the eighth grade, and so when I went back to school, they said, well, you have to do the eighth grade again. I said, no way, am I going to do the eighth grade again? All my friends are going into the ninth grade. And so they said, well, you have to. And I said, I knew the law. And the law was in Colorado, you only had to go to school up to the eighth grade at that time. And I said, well, I want you to know that if you don't let me go on to the ninth grade, I will drop out of school. And you can take pleasure in knowing that you've ruined my life because I'll end up as a gas station attendant or you know, a roofer instead of a doctor or a lawyer. No, I told him this. And they said, 
Okay, well, if you take a test and pass it, you can go on with uh, your friends, and of course, you know those tests. Yeah, you know it was easy. So. Yeah, you didn't fake fake fail that one. No, but that made him feel so guilty when I said I was going to grow up to be a gas station attendant. <laughs> hey, I was a gas station attendant for years. I resent that remark. Hey, they don't even have them anymore. I know. Well, in Oregon, they do. See, our career would be gone. Yeah, I know. I know. I called myself a petroleum redistribution technician. Yeah. Uh, okay, let's see. Uh, draft story we got. Why you decided to drop out of college but still got the education. We'll talk about that. The golden age in Amsterdam. This came up the other night. This was one of the things that made me think I wanted to chat with you. Hippie friends bringing LSD to the Tibetan mind. Oh, to Tibetan monks, I think she's oh, talking monks, about. From, right. from Amsterdam. Right. The foxes. Naked as a teenager on the golf course, messy. <laughs> Buddies with great musicians of the early 60s and 70s. Why you never liked Jim Morrison. Uh, let's, let's hear why you didn't like Jim Morrison. What was that? How did you know Jim Morrison? I ended up, after I got out, I did five years in college. We, I'll, I answer another question by going into this one. All right. I decided at the beginning that I wanted the education and I could care less about a piece of paper or right. a diploma. Right. And in fact, it never came up. So after I'd gotten my education, I decided that it would be a good time to drop out of school based in the fact that Timothy Leary came to speak. I had three hours to go. And you had the medical uh, exception to the military, so you didn't need to stay in school no, I to, didn't stay need to stay out. Stay out school. You had a free. But I was only a couple months from graduating anyway, after five years with two degrees uh, one in sociology and one in English lit. Right. And then Timothy Leary came and he gave this famous turn on, tune in, and drop out speech. And in fact, in unusual, probably because of my age, I had never smoked pot until I was a senior in college, mm. which I'm thankful for because it allowed my brain to completely develop and everything. But I had, in fact, just turned on. And then he comes and gives this speech about drop out and go do something with your life. And so I decided to do just that. And I had to get special permission to even drop out because I'd been there so long. They said, well, you might want to come back. And if you don't do it this way, you can never come back. And I said, I'm not coming back. I got the education. It was fabulous. Uh, my idea of college was to go learn how, how to make your brain work mm. and learn a bunch of facts, too. Yeah. And so... Yeah, critical thinking is essentially what you want, I, I would say, from a college education. Precisely. And that isn't what, the, you know, now they don't even, they're deleting arts and humanities and sciences and, you know, it's all marketing and, and yeah. IT. Yeah. It's yeah. all computers. Yeah. So after the hearing about Tim, Tim Leary's advice and taking it to heart, I packed up with my friend Maurice, who was a, a pot dealer. Uh -huh. And our goal was to come to L.A. and become pot dealers to the stars. Uh -huh. Was he growing or getting no, no, no. from this Mexico was, or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah, and better places, Panama. That was in the days of Panama, Panama Red, Red, Acapulco Gold. And, Columbia. Yeah, which was mostly dirt weed. Yeah. But it got be, that, be that as it may, we ended up in L.A., and he knew a couple musicians um, from from Colorado, and we ended up living with um, 
some members of the band Poco. Mm. And then we ended up hanging out with Buffalo Springfield, and I became very good friends with one of the Eagles members, Randy Meisner, the bass player. Mm. And through them, we met all the other musicians, you know. This is Laurel Canyon? Is that the big scene in Laurel Canyon? Yeah, it was Eagles pretty big. Jackson Brown. And Jackson Brown and Neil yeah, Young right. and Crazy Horse yeah. and, and, you know, uh, The Doors. Johnny Mitchell was back Johnny there. Johnny Mitchell. Yeah. Bob Dylan was being laughed off the stage. Was that his electric after, stage? Or? No, no. When he first came out, you know, he, yeah. and he was he was introduced by Joan Baez, and, but his harmonica and his voice, and everyone laughed at him. Wow. But um, there was a famous club here in L.A., and I'm not sure of the... I don't quite... Was it the Troubadour that burned down? Do you mm, remember? Is it in Sunset? It was one of the famous clubs that gave the start to a lot of the big bands, uh, who we were very tight with at that point. Right. And everybody was... They did a fundraiser at another club to raise money for the owner so he could rebuild. Mm. It was more than the insurance, whatever. And everyone was happy to do it. All the other bands were cool. But Jim Morrison was a complete ass about the whole thing. Yeah. He wanted to be paid. And he was just so arrogant. Yeah. You know, he thought he was God's gift to the world and yeah. women. And it was good music. But he was not a great poet. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Come on, baby, light my fire. Yeah. Come on, baby, light my fire. I mean, simple stuff. Yeah, he, and his I, leather pants. He bummed his, me out. I mean, there there are people. The thing with Jim Morrison that that bums me out is, you know, I've always felt like hallucinogens were uh, a potential window into uh, wisdom. Now they're not. I think Alan Watts talked about how they give you a glimpse of what's on top of the mountain. It's not, you're not, you're not there. You, you still need to do the work to get there. You still need to go through life and deal with your shit. And, but there's a, they can sort of, for the right person and the right way, used in, in the right way with uh, respect, they offer uh, sort of a, a, a preview of what it will be like to really work through your shit and, and sort of have things together. And so it always bums me out when people who are famous for their association with hallucinogens are such fucking losers, you know? I mean, Jim Morrison is, for me, I've never met him, obviously, but uh, he always sort of was an example of that for me. It's like, dude, you know, you're associating yourself with the, the sacred substance that people use to attain wisdom, and you're a fucking mess, you know, a complete mess. Well, it's, it's like it's a, really Aldous disappointing. Huxley, Aldous Huxley said, you know, it opens the doors of perception. Yeah. And I don't know if you knew this, but um, Aldous Huxley, as he lay on his deathbed, yeah. had his wife inject him with LSD because yeah. he wanted to be prepared to cross over properly. Yeah. And Houston Smith, who just died last month or two months ago yeah. at age 97, called them entheogens, right. God-knowing drugs. Right. And he tripped, and but he only did it a few times, and he got to that place where his doors were open, and so he quit doing them. Yeah, yeah. Alan Watts was the same. He, he said basically, right. you know, I've 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 seen Houston it. Houston and... is very close friend of Ariel's. Was oh really? And mine, mine as well. 
We did a workshop with him in the, when he was in his 90s at right. Esalen. Right. And then they became lifelong friends. And right. she would always visit him in Berkeley when she was in the Bay Area. Do you happen to know Stanley Krippner? The so name rings a bell, but... He was, was very close with Houston Smith. And Gene, right? Was Gene his wife? Gene um, Smith? Houston and... No, it wasn't Gene. Yeah, well, Stanley's a very good friend of mine. He's He's been on the podcast multiple times. Did you know that Houston Smith was one of the Harvard Psychedelic Club members? Yeah, with uh, Leary and Ram Dass and those people. And um, Andrew Weil. Yeah, yeah, Andrew Weil. Who was the one that got Houston... Got him got in got trouble. Him, got him fired yeah. from Harvard. Yeah. He's a rat. Well, that's a complicated story. Andrew Weil is a friend of mine. Yeah, Andrew Weil. Oh, is he a friend of yours? Yeah. See, I've been in my life, my career has been in the natural products industry for 42 years. Ah, okay. And I like Andrew Weil, but he, too, has too big an ego for me. Yeah, well, he, he, he really hit late in his career when he was on Oprah a lot and, and he started having that, you know, the bestsellers about alternative, right, right. Uh, what's he called, complementary medicine. But his first, well, as you know, his first four or five books are all about consciousness, the natural mind. Well, that's because, yeah, of after he got mind. out of Harvard, he did the same trip and went yeah. to South America and yeah. did all the drugs. And yeah, that's The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon. That right. book is great, great. Right. I really love that book. Um, yeah, so, yeah, a lot of those. Well, it, Have you read The Harvard Psychedelic Home? The, By Lappin? No. You'd no. love it because it's it breaks in right? the sections. It's a, Tim Leary is the trickster. Right. And Ram Dass is the seeker. And Houston Smith was the teacher, uh-huh. and Andrew Weil was the healer. Is, what, is Richard Evan Schultes involved in that? Is yeah, he, they, a he, he mentions a little bit, but small. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. Do you know Wade Davis? No. He was a student of Richard Evan Schultes, as was Andrew Weil. And uh, Wade Davis is an ethnobotanist who's you know, studied, been in the Amazon a lot. Um, anyway, I had him on the podcast recently as well. So, yeah, there's a lot of overlap, these, these right, different exactly. worlds. Um, now, where were we? You were with your buddy. Your buddy was uh, selling weed to the rock and roll world. He was selling weed ambitious. to the rock and roll world. How did he figure he was going to like get... The, they've already got great connections. He was in a band when he was in college, and he met a couple of heavy hitters. He met, mm. uh, like he met one of the people that was uh, going to be gone to become an eagle and he and he knew canned heat do you remember the band yeah canned heat? yeah what were their hits I on the road again do 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 that sounds like willie nelson well and <laughs> bob height was the big heavy guy that they called the bear he died of a heart attack from probably doing amyl nitrates mm. you know and overdid but um Poppers. we were good friends of theirs they lived in topanga or laurel i've, I've forgotten mm. But um, it actually worked out pretty well. And then, um, but if we can back up a little, yeah. on the drive from leaving college to go to this new venture in California was when we had the um, saving the guy that got squished, squashed, the old miner. So we leave Boulder, Colorado. And we're headed to California for our new venture, adventure. We decided it'd be a good idea to do LSD as we left town, so we did. 
And so it was coming on pretty strong by the time we got to Nevada. Really strong, you know, we were hours into it. Now I was driving, my friend had decided to get in the back seat and stretch out as best he could. It was a little Volkswagen, but he got in the back to get some rest and I'm driving and I come around a corner and there's all these blue lights and red lights flashing, ambulances and cop cars, and there's been a terrible accident. Mm -hmm. And so the cop stops me like this, and I'm speechless. <laughs> you know, because just the flashing lights alone. And um, he comes, he says, you know, blah, 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 and the ambulance is full with people, and this guy here is dying, he's bleeding to death, you've got to take him to the hospital. What? Right? And you're tripping? I'm tripping, oh. and I'm just looking at this patrolman with my mouth hanging open, you know, the lights <laughs> blinking like crazy. And he drags this guy around to the passenger side, and he throws him into the car and slams the door. He says, go, go, go to the town. And we're in the middle of the desert, you know, I drive off, and I look over, and this guy's got blood, coughing ah. blood, you know. Ah. And he's, he's, Everything's broken. He says, God, my leg's broken and my ribs are broken, my jaw is broken. I said, you're, you're, you know, buddy, you should just not talk. You should just sit still and be quiet because you're in really bad shape. He said, ah, oh, this is nothing. <laughs> These are hard miners. He says, I've, I've been, I've seen guys that have been in cave, cave-ins that have been squoshed so bad their guts came out of their mouth. That's where I got the squashed. This guy's saying this in your yeah, tripping. He's coughing blood everywhere. He's got broken bones and he's just sagged around. And so, your buddy in the back, is he awake yet or is he still crashed out? He's wide awake. He's pretending he's sound asleep. <laughs> so I had to He deal doesn't with want it. to deal with and any I'm of this just shit. in shock, you know, <laughs> driving on. Yeah. Finally, this town comes, so I don't know, what, Wells, Winnemucca, Burn, some out, you know, someplace. Yeah middle of nowhere. Now it was a littler town than that. We were driving around and then we come to this park. It went through town. And on the other side of the park there's a police station. He says, well you can stop and let me out here. I said, what are you talking about? I'm taking you to the hospital. You've got a broken leg. You've got, all your bones are broken. You're coughing blood. You've got a rib punctured lung. And he says, yeah, but I have to report the accident. This is true. And I said, well, I'll drive you over to the police station. He said, no, I've, I've put you out of your way enough. He says, but if it means anything to you, you can know that you, you saved my life. And he got out of the car and hopped off on his one unbroken leg across the park to the police station. Oh, fuck. And then my buddy sits up and says, boy, that was something, wasn't it? <laughs> and I'm like, you. <laughs> you know, I, I was so mad at him for not helping me deal with it, but this guy was tough. The toughest guy I've ever met, probably. You know, there's something about LSD that, uh, I, like, okay, LSD alters your consciousness and, and your perception of things and all that, but it, it also attracts weirdness. Because things happen when you're tripping that are legitimately bizarre. That's true. That don't seem to happen when you're not tripping. I've had a lot of experiences while tripping that it's like, I, it, it, that it's didn't happen because I was high. Yeah, there's a tear in the, the fabric of reality yes. and these things come in that normally, I mean, I have all these weird animals uh, experiences with animals when I'm tripping. Like river otters will just like walk, you know, come out, like over to me. And I had mountain goats. 
They can sense yeah, that they there's sense. something, and, and they, they also they sense you. that they're not in any danger. That's it. Yeah. So they, I mean, mountain goats are notorious. You know, they yeah, you see them miles away. Yes. You can't never get near and them. And on mushrooms up in Montana, we used to, and the mountain goats would come right up to us. <laughs> and they'd go, what are these people doing? We'd be sitting on a rock, you know, looking at these mountain goats walking around. And, yeah, and you're thinking like. Uh, Yes, I'm tripping, but this is actually happening. This is not a hallucination. This exactly. is actually happening, but it there is something about being high on, on hallucinogens that attracts weirdness. Yeah, strange. Wow. So you never heard anything... So now, had you gone back, or had no, you gone forward? No, that was on our way to to our fame and fortune in oh, that, that was the initial drive yeah. to California. It all went from... from the draft through college to Tim Leary to driving yeah. to California to that. Yeah. So did you have weed in the car? Um. Probably. Yeah. So I mean a little bit. Oh, not a not a few kilos. No, no, no. We we to... got it out there and then just turned it out there. Yeah. You, it was hard to get in Colorado in those days. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, it's a very Hunter S. Thompson sort of scenario. I know it was. It was. Uh, it was quite an adventure. Did you ever cross paths with him in your Colorado and no drugs? Never did. And all that? No. Yeah, he's another guy. Like I don't know. I I admire him in some ways, and I but I wish he had just been able to dial it down a little bit. Yeah, he needed to dial it down a little yeah. bit. Yeah, like he became a caricature of himself, and like you know, Johnny Depp is. You think so? I think so. No. They, they were good friends. Actually. Yeah, he spent a million bucks on shooting his ashes out of the cannon, and yeah. and I think Johnny's changing. You know, of course, he's become Keith Richards. Yeah, for the pirates. Yeah, I mean yeah. that's Keith. Yeah. Now Keith, on the other hand, seems to like be able to keep his shit together despite all the pressures of stardom and all that. Amazing! Out of all the Rolling Stones, you think Keith would have been gone twenty years yeah, ago, and he's yeah. fine. He's yeah. still married to the same woman, and yeah. you know. Yeah, and he's. Did you read his autobiography? No. I, I read the first. I, I intended to just read the first couple of paragraphs, and I couldn't stop till I was like fifty pages in. And then I had to stop because I just have all this other stuff I have to read, and so I sort of set that aside till. Dude, was he really honest in it? It's fantastic. So he talks about his mistress and. Well, not in the first fifty pages. The first fifty pages is, you know, they're they're driving through the South, through Alabama or Mississippi or something, and it's all about how sometimes they'll stop at a. You know, they they were going from one gig to another, and instead of flying, they decided to drive because they wanted to see the Delta and where the blues came from and all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, Robert Johnson. Yeah, the crossroads. And exactly. All. So they were driving along, and they had this big old, I don't know, it was a Cadillac or something, and, you know, they're all getting high, and they've got pills, and they've got stuff in the, you know, into the, behind the, the, the panels in the door, you know, they've got weed and pills. And when you could get away with it. <laughs> well, they didn't, though. They got busted. But it, so it's all about how, like, they'd stop at a, you know, a truck stop or a little town. And if they walked in and it was white people, then it was going to be a lot of hostility and, you know, faggots and, you know, oh, queers. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, they'd have to, often they'd, like, run out, throw some money on the table and run out. But if they stopped in a place where it was all black people, uh, 
you know, once there was some hostility there, too, because they were white. But once he picked up a guitar and played a few licks, then suddenly you're welcome to the They're party. friends. And, you know, there's all the drugs and <laughs> pussy and whatever you want, you know. So it was a totally different world. Anyway, it was really well written and, and just engaging. And I, I look forward to picking it up again when I... The problem is I'm writing a book, so everything I read really needs to go into what I'm working on. You know, it's like sure. if you're a bus driver, you don't really want to go on a driving vacation, you know. You just, right, right, right. It's one of those things. Um, so, so how long were you in L.A. then with your buddy? Did you stick around with him while he was doing the, the weed thing? Yeah. Was it we, only we, weed we, or was he selling other stuff? No, no, no. This is really innocent times. In fact, I didn't even ever see anyone do any, any hard drugs. Well, you had acid, right? Well, yeah, but I mean like cocaine or heroin yeah, right. or, you know, the ones that are taking people down. No, yeah. it was all pot. There was a little hashish. And, um, yeah, that was pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. I remember those the hashish days, Lebanese and Afghani, the blonde. It was mostly fake, but I didn't learn that till I got to Amsterdam. Yeah. So it did work out really well. We had a great time. Nobody got busted. Um, it was just pot, you know. And so f finally, I decided the smart thing to do. That those were the days when the penalties were really severe. Yes. Yeah. I mean, they were giving life in prison in Texas yeah. for a joint. Yeah. And also in Nevada, when you drove to California and you went through Nevada, they had a big banner, a sign across the highway that said, don't gamble with drugs in Nevada, life imprisonment. Hmm. And so, you know, we'd be going back and forth carrying something. It was scary as hell. Yeah. So I decided I liked what I was doing. And I like being around the rock scene, and I like being around hip people. So I thought, well, I got to get out of this country. I got to go someplace where they don't take it so damn seriously. Mm. Let's go to Amsterdam, where it's legal. Well, it's not legal, but yeah. it's they don't care. So, so I, what, what year is this now? This is now. This is um, summer of '69. Summer of '69, important time. So, so the summer of love was '68, right? And '69 was. Oh, '68 is when I got out of college. That's right. Okay. That was five years, and right. then I went into '69. I did the California thing, and then moved oh. to Amsterdam in the summer of '69. Oh, okay. And, right. And the summer of love, I think, was '67. '67, and like Altamont, and the, yeah, the exactly. sort of. Thing. That was like 68, 69. Oh, God, that was the disastrous rock concert that yeah. the Stones did and right. hired Hell's, Angels, Hell's for Angels for security. And, yeah. But, and that sort but of the scene is like the... The scene was the nice one, you know. That yeah, was and that Altamont is often seen as sort of where, you know, the 60s... And around the same time the Manson thing happened, it was sort of like the end of the innocent, happy... I was in Playa del Rey when the Manson thing happened. And because of my musician friends, they said, well, when you get your hair cut, you have to go to J. Sebring. J. Sebring, that he was, was involved. Was the one found tied to Sharon Tate, killed by oh, the Manson family. Geez. He had Sebring's hairdressers. Uh, and so he was the one that actually cut our hair. And so we were sitting and we got the news and it was like, holy crap. Yeah. Because, you know, like I say, he was the one tied to the pregnant Sharon Tate, and then they killed the other people. And so, anyway, that was not good. No. But I decided to, I had a motorcycle out here, 
And I had my wife, my girlfriend at that time, fly into um, San Francisco. And I drove my motorcycle from LA to San Francisco. She got on the back and we drove back to Boulder. What kind of bike was it? Uh, BSA Lightning 650. Oh, is it a single cylinder? Or? Dual. It was pretty much a Triumph Bonneville, but it had two uh, more horsepower. Uh, yeah, nice. And it was a nice bike. Yeah. And that drive back, I mean, I had long hair and a ponytail, and I had, you know, I was a hippie. And so we did, it was like easy rider. Yeah, I was going to say. Uh, we got, like we got into all kinds of trouble. Really? And people tried to run us off the road. I'm and sure. the, I had to pull a gun on, on some kids in one of the little towns when we were gassing up. They, they, a carload of young punks, five or six of them in a convertible, came into the gas station, got out of their car and said, we're going to beat the hell out of you. And... Um, I happened to have a little 38 special tucked in a sleeping bag, and I just stood my hand in and pulled it on. I said, I don't think so. I think you better get back in your car. And they did. And then, of course, the chase was on, and finally they gave up. I, wow. But yeah, it was very much like Easy Rider. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So you, so you picked her up. In San Francisco. Yeah. This is when you, this was your departure from L.A. Yes. You're like, goodbye to the Eagles and all that. Goodbye to those and off to Europe to, for the real bands were right. The Who and The Stones and mm. you know, Led Zeppelin. And right, right. So you flew to Amsterdam because, I mean, were they, the, the scene, was there a big rock and roll scene in Amsterdam or was, was it mostly huge, London? There was a huge scene and... We, my plan was to spend the summer, to go and just spend, you oh, know, okay. two or three months right. with my girlfriend. But we liked it so much, we got there, and I, there were four main clubs in Amsterdam in the late 60s and early 70s. There was the Milky Way, the Melkweg, which is still Still there. Today. I've been there, yeah. There was yeah. Fantasio, which is now yeah. closed. There was Paradiso, which I think is maybe reopened. Huh. And then there was the Meditatsi Centrum de Cosmos, the Cosmos Meditation Center. Uh -huh. And that was the best one because the others were a big drug scene and loud and hard rock, and they were a lot of fun. But this one was the one where all the swamis came and all the pandits from the east, and um, they had an herbal tea house, and they had a macrobiotic restaurant, a co-ed sauna, and they had a big auditorium for... Mm -hmm either music groups or, you know, speakers like the Maharishi Mahishogi came and Sivananda came or Satchitananda, I can't remember which one's dead. I think Satchitananda came. I walked out on him. I walked out on Swami Satchitananda. Why? Because he, he was so pedantic. He was like our worst nightmare college professor. Hmm. I was in charge of getting people in and organizing the entire event. He should have been grateful. Taking their tickets, taking their coats, getting them all seated, blah, 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 going shutting the doors. So I get everybody in the auditorium, and he's sitting up on his thing, and I had to go wrap up everything downstairs, and I come up, and I open the door, and he looks over at me like this like I've interrupted his classroom. Mm -hmm. And so I walked very quietly over to my spot and I sat down and he said, he looks at me and says, well, if there will be no more interruptions, I'll try to continue. 
And I looked at him and I got up and I said, do you discontinue? And I walked out. Yeah. And I thought, this is no holy man. Yeah. You know, not, not to shame me in front of everyone. I was doing it for him. Right. Yeah, there's a lot of ego in that guru world. But that being said, then the venerable Dharmawara, Bhante, B-H-A-N-T-E, came from Cambodia and to do color healing. It was his first trip to the West in his life. He was like 80 then. Mm. And we're talking in the 60s, yeah. right? And um, he was advisor to Prince Sihanouk, who you'll remember became King Sihanouk, yeah. and then was deposed. And finally, this Cambodian Buddhist monk, the Venerable Dharmawara, comes to Amsterdam, and I set that up too, the color healing thing. And then he was gracious enough to marry my girlfriend and I in a Buddhist wedding mm. on the boat with flowers and in Sanskrit the wedding was. And then years went by. And I never really appreciated how blessed I was to have been married by one of the holiest people on the planet. Mm. So about a year ago I Googled him. And it turns out that after his European tour, he moved to the Bay Area and founded some big order and lived to be 110. Wow. The longest living known Buddhist monk ever. And so he didn't die until like, I think 1999 or 2000. Wow. I, I should have been yeah, in contact. Yeah, could have dropped him. in, yeah. But 110, right? That's amazing, yeah. 110. Were you living on a houseboat in Amsterdam? Uh, yeah, as soon as I got there, I got a 110-foot houseboat yeah. um, and lived on it for five years. Beautiful. It yeah. was, you know, it was every, all the houseboats were painted psychedelic, and, and the living was so cheap in Amsterdam. Really? With the rent for a 110-foot houseboat, I paid 50 guilders a month. Hmm. And a guilder at that time, there were four to the dollar. <sighs> $22 a month? Yeah, so it was like $300, $200 a year for yeah. rent. Yeah. Once a week, the water boat would come by. Or no, no, 12, 12. Yeah, it was. 12 and a half dollars a month, yeah. Good. <laughs> Very good. Very good. And once a week, the water boat would come by. Uh -huh. I had a 400 gallon water tank, and he'd throw his water hose up on the roof, mm. and I would um, fill my tank. And that costs two guilders. Wow. So that costs so 50, 50 cents your... a week. That was 400 gallons. Yeah. Use it as you wanted. Yeah. So all in all, life was great in Amsterdam. And it was cheap to live and cute. Cute. The Dutch are very, very sweet people. The, yeah. wa the water boat guy, for instance, after he, I threw his hose back down to him, because I'm on a big boat, he's on a flatter boat, he had a fishing pole with a wooden shoe on the end of the line. And he'd hold the fishing pole up and you'd put your two guilders in the wooden right. shoe and then... <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they have a very uh, developed sense of design, the, the Dutch. Everything's really beautiful. The windows are uh, so clean. You know, like everyone's yeah. windows are clean all the time. And yeah, I have a good friend who's Dutch. We were walking down the street. He grew up near, he grew up in Nijmegen, but he's been living in Amsterdam a long time. And uh, I said something about how 
how I admired the Dutch that they always have their curtains open and you walk down the street, you can see right into people's lives. Yeah, they're lives. sitting there reading or... Yeah, or having dinner or whatever. And you just, I said, it's, it's great how shameless they are, you know, like they just, uh, they, they, and then with nakedness, they don't care. They're relaxed about nakedness and all this. And my friend said, well, yeah, in some cases we're pretty shameless, like about sex and, you know, drugs and things like that. But really the reason that everyone keeps their curtains open is that, if you close your curtains, your neighbors will talk about you. I'm wondering what you're doing <laughs> yeah, exactly. in there. Exactly. So it's like a way of saying, hey, nothing going on in here. Everything's fine, you know. So it's actually kind of a shame. You know, there is a reaction to shame. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I admire Dutch culture. I often thought that would be a place I'd like to live. But you actually learned Dutch. I did learn to speak Dutch. I, I, that's that's a job. Nobody learns Dutch. <laughs> no, and there's only 16 million people in the world that speak it. Yeah. So it's like the least practical one to learn. Yeah. But I kind of wanted it for. Remember the Navajo Code Talkers? Yeah, right. It's kind of like that. I thought you I'll, had a secret language. But there's actually a little backstory to that. I lived in Amsterdam for five years, and I never learned Dutch. So when, when did you learn Dutch? I didn't learn Dutch because they're such great linguists. They're the best linguists in the world. Most yeah. Dutch people speak three or four languages. Yeah. Some speak six very, or seven. Very, very well. Right. Yeah. And um, so what happened was years later, after I'd moved back here, I decided that out of respect for the Dutch people and how much I liked them, I was going to teach myself Dutch. And so I did. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, I and thought I you just my picked, 60s. learned it when you were there. I was in my there. 60s. What? Yes. And they, they say to keep your brain agile, one yeah. of the best things you can do is learn a foreign language, right. right? Right. Which is really hard to do at our age. Yeah. Easy when you're little, right? Yeah. But so I thought, okay, I'm going to learn Dutch. And <clears throat> I went out and got a verb book and a dictionary. Mm -hmm. And so whenever I look at something, you know, I'd look it up, a bottle, fuss, you know, mm. right, like that. And or if I think of a verb, you know, to talk, you know, whatever, you know, right? And finally I got to the point where I felt confident enough to get some tapes and a learning program. And forget Rosetta Stone, Pimsleur language programs are the best. So mm. I got the Pimsleur program, and that got me to a point where I needed a tutor. Mm. So I called the University of Colorado, and I said, do you have anybody that teaches Dutch there? And they said, no, but we have a Dutch woman that teaches Norwegian. And I said, well, can I have her number? And so they gave me her number, and I called her, and she said, well, I, couldn't, I can't teach you Dutch because I'm here on a visa to teach Norwegian, and I work for the University of Colorado. And her name was Michelin, out Kronigen, from the north. Hmm. And um, so I said, well, Micheline, what if I come to your house or your apartment after, you know, you're at school and I'll just pay you under the table in cash? And she said, okay. So she said uh, she'd take me on as a student and I studied with her for two years. And she told me she was going to teach me to speak Alamein Beskampft Nederlands, which is everyday correct Dutch. Hmm. You know, not the slang they use in Amsterdam. It was like mm. grammatically correct, mm. which gets me in trouble when I'm over there because you sound but, um, formal. It was great. It was great, and I did learn to speak it. And I knew I'd learned to speak it when I started dreaming in Dutch. Right. And that's when that's they say when you know. Get it. Yeah. 
And then I started going to Holland twice a year, just for vacations and health food shows and like that. Right. And yeah, and I spoke Dutch then. That's fantastic. Wow. I thought you just learned it when you were there. That's I know everybody does, cool. but no. Yeah. yeah, well, give, give a shout out to our Dutch listeners. I know there's some people in Holland who listen to the podcast. Say, uh-huh. say something to them in Dutch. Goeiedag, Nederlanders. Ik hou van alle Nederlanders. Yeah. Ik denk uh, zijn de meeste normale mensen in de gehele wereld. Nice. I think you're the nicest people in the whole world. Most something normal. like that. Oh, the most normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so too. It's it's a very rational kind of culture. Yeah. At least, at least in these days. They're a little more standoffish than Amer- than Americans. Yeah. You know, they're a little more serious. Yeah. But they're so open in in terms of um, live and let live. Yeah. You can be old or young or straight or gay or right. black or white. And yeah. That's changing now. Yeah, I was reading recently about um, the way uh, Dutch parents deal with the emerging sexuality of their teenage kids. And it's just, it's so typically Dutch, man. It's like, okay, your 14-year-old daughter has a boyfriend and uh well so have him over for dinner and uh everyone you know talks and he's a nice young man well you're welcome to spend the night here young man and you know sleep with my daughter and you know about condoms and you know you i expect that you two won't do anything that you know you're not ready to do but of course when you do you know there are condoms and we'll take you to a gynecologist and just like Wow, just totally rational and cool and smart, and you know, and the rates of teen pregnancy are a fraction of what yeah. they are in the U.S. Yeah, virtually nil. Yeah, they, yeah. Um, they're yeah, they're just they're so pragmatic and so open, and it, it's really the whole world could learn a hell of a lot from the Dutch. Yeah, and it's crazy because you know I was thinking about this the other day with uh, I have a Swedish friend. We were talking about uh, Swedish prison system, and it's it's so rational. It's not about punishment. It's about you made a mistake. Yeah, how are we gonna like change the course of your life? Because you know, and their recidivism rate is a tenth of what it is in the U.S. Probably less than that. They spend less money in the prisons than we do. But you look at a, the, the prison cell, it's like a small apartment. It's a studio apartment. They've got computers. They've got TVs. Oh, nice. They're comfortable. Everything's fine. The food is great. They're, they're not wearing shackles and orange no. jumpsuits. You're probably wearing what you're wearing right exactly. here. Exactly. They're wearing normal clothing. It's not about humiliating them. It's about getting them to change the course of behavior, which is, of course, what you want to do. The humiliation isn't going to solve anything. Did you read the recent article? It was within the last two weeks on the Dutch prison system. And the the Dutch prison system is exactly the same. They want to yeah. rehabilitate. And right. because of that, over 30% of the prisons are empty. Right. And because of that, they decide, well, this is a good place to put refugees and immigrants uh, and homeless yeah. people. Yeah. And so they're... Yeah. They're using that. They're using it properly. Yeah. And the, in the same article, it said, do you know how many people are serving life terms in Holland? None. 35. 35. <laughs> There's 35 people that are doing life in the entire country. Yeah, yeah. 
it's, yeah, that's crazy. In Sweden, it's uh, there's no life term. It's 20-year maximum. That guy who killed all those kids on the island, not Sweden, that's no, Norway. Brevik. Yeah. Anders Brevik. Right. He's got 20 years. And yeah, I think that's, that's yeah. too little, I think, Well, for killing 77 children. Yeah. And he's gotten more extreme while he's inside. Yeah. So I'd be really leery. I think that they have a, a law that they don't have to let him out. Well, if it's a mental health thing, if well, he's, he's still is messed up. You is, think he's yeah. got mental problems? Yeah. But, <laughs> but then that raises the question of, you know, is there any real criminal? Does it ever make sense to view something as criminal as opposed to mental illness? You know, I, I kind of feel like anyone who premeditated murder is itself a sign of mental illness. You know, otherwise... Something's wrong know. with you if you're running around killing people. If you're killing somebody for some money, that could be defined as mental illness. Yeah, it could be, but I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you on that one. I think they're just bad people. You know. But why are they bad? Do you think they're born cheap, bad, or were they made bad, or is it trauma? Were they abused as children? You it's know? probably way we're trying to way oversimplify. It's probably a combination of all those things. Yeah. One may be more predominant in some cases. You know, abuse yeah. or see. I don't think anyone's born bad. I don't think I don't think puppies are born. You know, wanting to uh, predestined to be no, bad I mean, dogs. No, you can make the same case for Hitler. He was abused as a child. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. But at a certain point, your your free choice takes over. Yeah. I don't know. That, that's that's a bigger question than than I can deal with. All right. Now I I don't want to let you get away without talking about wrestling with Victor the Bear. But how how do you? Is this at a circus or something? How does no, it? No, you'd never get away with this today because of liabilities. But when I was a freshman at CU, that was, this would have been in 1963. Uh, it was a Friday. I'd probably been drinking beer with my friends. And we were walking around up on what they call the hill, which is the happening place by the university. And lo and behold, there's this big bear on a chain on a corner, and they put up a little fencing around him, and the trainer was in there. And there was a sign that said, for five bucks you can wrestle the bear. And so I'd been drinking beer, so naturally I shot my mouth off, and I said, ah, five, five bucks, I'd wrestle that beer. And so all my friends pulled a dollar out, you know, each one of them. And so I was kind of stuck doing it, uh, or else I'd be a coward. So I watched the bear wrestling football players and big guys, big guys, and he would just crush them to the ground. You know, they'd, they'd yeah. rush in and grab him, and he'd grab them. He just, he was 400 pounds. He was wearing a muzzle, so he wasn't biting. He was wearing a muzzle, yeah. yes. So he did, but he'd been declawed. Oh, God. Well, thank Poor God. Yeah. You don't want to wrestle. Yeah, no. <laughs> did, did you see the revenant? Five bucks to get killed by a bear. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, I watched, I watched how he did it. And what he pretty much did was he kind of just put his paws on you and just kind of crushed you to yeah, the ground. Yeah. So finally it's my turn to go in and I go into the ring and then the trainer gives you the caveats. And he says, okay, now don't piss the bear off. Don't, <laughs> don't, don't pull his hair, uh-huh. don't pull his ears, because yeah. you'll make him mad. And then yeah. I'm like, well, you didn't tell well, me what that can you do? get mad, yeah. you know? And keep your hands away from the muzzle because if you get your fingers in there, it'll chew your hand off. Oh, and, yeah. 
by now I don't want to do it even, of you know. But, so anyway, he says, okay, I'm standing there and, he, and the bear, you know, bears kind of look like dogs, right? Yeah. Like big dogs. And so when they're standing down, they're not so big, but then when they stand up, yeah. and so I'm like, no oh boy. When Victor stood up, you know, he was huge. But I'd watched him fight the other people. So he came over and he put his paws on my shoulder and I immediately backed up. I put my body in an angle and put my hands on his shoulders. And so he couldn't get any leverage, hmm. right? He tried to crush me down. So but you're shrugging his, his paws off your shoulders. He tried, but he couldn't. Yeah. So finally what he did is, I mean, this is a professional wrestling bear and they're smart animals. Bear hug. No. No. He stepped into me. He put a paw behind me he, and pushed he me tripped over. You? He tripped really? me over his back leg. Wow. And then he jumped on me. Wow. And that was the end of it. You know, 400 pounds landing on you, and that was that. That must have been, I mean, was, was there some sort of like instinctive terror when the bear was like coming down on you? Yes. To, yeah. And yes. Yeah. I and imagine. he was drooling on me and yeah. breathing this hot bear breath, and he was on me. and. I went back to the dorm after that, and I don't think I've ever been that tired in my life. Because the adrenaline rush must have been yeah. profound, yeah. That's, it's an interesting class of experience where you're experiencing something that evolutionarily would have meant death, but because of whatever technology or... I, I think about scuba diving. First time I ever I did an open water test when I was getting my scuba license, was in the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, and it was a stormy day. The water was really rough. And I can remember we were bobbing, you know, we had our, our uh, what's Your the, the... PCDs. Yeah, the, what's it called, yes. the flotation thing. It inflated, so we were bobbing on the surface of the water, but these waves were coming, and they were, you know, going into our faces, and we had our masks on and the regulator in our mouths. So we had it secure, yeah, you, you know, safe. we're safe. But the feeling every time that wave washed over my face was like, oh, I'm going to drown. So I was really hyperventilating. And we had to wait because the instructor was giving instructions or whatever. And you don't want to hyperventilate with a regular. Exactly. You're, slow You're using steady. up all your oxygen. But then the minute we got underwater, then I relaxed. And it was as if my body needed to be convinced that I wasn't in danger because all those years of evolution of you're floating on it's the surface. You it's instinctive. It's instinctive. Exactly. So that's another one. You've got a bear, you know, you fall yeah. down, you're on your back and a bear is coming down on you. You've got millions of years of evolution saying, this is it, dude, you're about to die. Right. Even though your rational mind says Even he's got a muzzle. Die, yeah. Yeah. Or jumping out of an airplane or, you know, like there, there's a certain class of experience that's, yeah. My son does that one. He's he he skydives. Yeah. Have you ever done that? No. Yeah, nor have I. I did uh, but I can fly. But I can fly him up and let him jump out. Are you a pilot? Yeah, I got my license in college. Oh, nice. And I've flown. You were fucking busy in college. For a guy who wasn't studying much, you were well, getting a lot done. I didn't have time to study. <laughs> yeah, I was busy getting my pilot's license and doing crazy shit with planes. Like, you've been to Boulder? Yeah. You know the Flatirons? Uh, no, I was there a lot. I, I was only there the, once. Those I don't three, know. well, there's these faulted, uh, double faulted cliffs that uh, rise above Boulder that are uh, real famous. Uh, and back in the day, when I was getting my license, my instructor encouraged me to 
bump my landing gear off the flat irons. What? Yes, right? So I'd go up and I'd circle around and I'd put the plane in a steep bank. And he's in the plane with you? Or not. And you, you try to make a landing, essentially. Like a sideways landing. But, you know, you're basically just touching your wheels to the thing and skid and then... Wow. And, you know, if I got caught doing that today, I'd lose my license sure. on the spot. They'd just take it away. Yeah. You ever fly a float plane? Never have. And my uncle's uh, got an amphibious plane that he flies. He's been flying for 30 I've always or 40 wanted years. To. Yeah, it's so nice. He, he lives in Florida. You know, you just sort of circle around. That looks like a nice beach. And you just sort of circle around, make sure there are no cables or anything, and then just come in and land wherever you want. It's pretty Taxi cool. Taxi up onto the beach. Yeah, yeah, it's really nice. I, I could get a rating in one day. No, probably, yeah, because you've already got all the pilot stuff. Yeah, they stuff. say yeah. it's not that hard. There's just a few secrets, like keeping the power on when you land. Mm. So you don't, oh, right. you know, as normally it holds the, the nose power up. as you're right. touching. You want to keep good power on. Right. right. So have you, has the pilot's license been valuable to you in your life, or is it just a weekend thing? It's never made me any money, but it's given me amazing experiences when I when I went into the Amazon with uh, Ariel and her mom, um, I was able to fly one of the planes into the Amazon. Did you rent a plane? No, it was part of the group, but um, they wanted another pilot and I could do it. So mm -hmm. I got the, that was a great flight, flying mm. into the Amazon is exciting yeah. as hell. Yeah. Where'd you fly, to Manaus? We flew, no, we flew from, um, I forget the, both the names of the tiny little town on the Ecuadorian border into Kapawi, which is uh, Oshawa territory. So mm. we were in with the what used to be headhunting tribes. Now the, these are guys that live naked with blowguns. Mm. They're the ones that met the plane at the dirt runway they'd hacked out in the jungle. What kind of trip was that? What, was that just a tourist kind of thing? It we went with the Pachamama Alliance. The Pachamama Alliance. Pachamama means Mother Earth, right? Uh -huh. It really means Mother Earth, the sky, the, and all beyond. But um, they do tours to show how the oil companies are destroying the indigenous rainforest for the Oshawar and and the Chuar and the Waharani and all these yeah. so-called headhunting tribes. Is this the, the Oriente? The, the, I think the, there's a part of Ecuador and um, Brazil, the upper headwaters of the Amazon. I think it's called the Oriente, and it's one of the richest ecosystems in the world. Yeah, and it's also where their Texaco is just yeah. dumping shit yeah. in the rivers yeah, and destroying everything. Yeah, And we spent three or four days in there. One day we spent in the Oshawa village with the villagers sleeping rough, you know, in the dirt mm. and um, doing ayahuasca. So it was pretty epic, really. Yeah. It was the full moon. It was New Year's Eve. It was all mm. these things. Mm. We were on ayahuasca and and you really see the full moon when you're in the Amazon because there's no ambient light. Yeah, yeah. So, you're in a clearing was, for the village. But yeah, it, your direct answer to your question, fine, has been really valuable for me. Mm. Yeah, it's something I think about. I mean, I'm already in my 50s, but um, I'm thinking it's, it's one of the things on my list that I'd like to do. I always, my uncle had offered to teach me to fly for years, but I was too busy traveling around and... You'd love it. It's, yeah, it's such I, a I love of, going up with him. It's such a feeling of freedom to yeah. be out there. You're flying. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's, 
Yeah, it's another one of those experiences that, you know. I almost would rather go off on my own. Yeah. Because then I can do stuff that other people would get scared doing. Mm. You know, spins and stalls and wing overs and. Yeah. It's just fun. Do you have your own plane or do you rent? No, no. That's a rich man's game going on. Well, that's what's kept me out of it. It's it's expensive. You you rent them full of gas and probably 120 bucks an hour wet. Mm. That's not bad. No, it's a hell of a lot better than owning one. You're going to, you know, to do a time between overhaul and an engine is probably a couple of years and that's going to cost you $30,000. Yeah. You know, all these... You don't want to scrimp on that. No, you can't. It's yeah. all FAA rigs. Yeah. So what the, you were talking about wrestling the bear, you, you mentioned or Ariel mentioned to me that you had some martial arts training as well. You don't seem like a, like a fighting kind of guy, but there's been a lot of... I'm not. And I was always the smallest kid in class when uh-huh. I was growing up. Right. And I always got picked on. And I always... Not lived in fear, but I was always worried about getting beat up. Yeah. So when I came back from Amsterdam, that was in '74, and the movie, the TV series Kung Fu, had just started. David Kwai Chain Kane. I loved it. Grasshopper. I watched it every Thursday night. Me too. Yeah. And I thought, now that's what I want to be, a warrior monk, because right. I'm peaceful. But right. if I get attacked, I want to be able to defend myself. Yeah, and that? defend other people. It is said a Shaolin monk can walk through walls. Yeah. Looked for, he cannot be seen. Listened for, he cannot be heard. Touched, he cannot be felt. This rice paper is the test. When you can walk its length and leave no trace, you will have learned. And that's when I learned to walk on sand, wet sand, without leaving a trace. Uh-huh. After many years, I took private lessons for eight years of Kung Fu. And I thought I was really hot shit. Then I was a blue belt or high green, I forget. But I thought I was tired of black gi, yeah. not a white Oh, you got to, you know. yeah, when you get the black gi and, and you're And so I went to a Taekwondo studio downtown Boulder that was run by Jim Harkins, who was an ex-middleweight world champion. So he was really tough. Drove a brown Porsche with karate license plate. So anyway, like I said, I thought I was tough, you know? Yeah. But we had mostly been practicing forms. Right, You know, not so much kata, not so much kumite, sparring. Yeah. And so I got in the ring with these guys with, you know, mouth guard and... We didn't wear, we have much protection. We had shin guards. Did we, we didn't have any foot guards. We had gloves. And um, I can't, maybe I used a rib protector. But anyway, they had some of their low ranking purple belts and how to get in. And I just got my ass pounded to the can, you know, mm. spinning heel kicks, whack, right in the face. But I needed to get over that fear, which I'd had my whole life, of mm. being punched in the face. Right. So finally I learned to get punched in the face and punch back. Yeah. But I realized my deficiencies in martial arts. And so I, then I signed up with him, and I took three and a half years of Taekwondo mm. to improve my kicking and my sparring. And then from that experience, I learned that where do fights end up? On the ground. Yeah. Jiu-jitsu. So I took three and a half years of jujitsu yeah. to learn grappling skills. Yeah. And yeah, because of that, I have a pretty strong martial arts background. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I studied Kung Fu as well, and you know, largely because of that show. And the, I was always the new kid in town, so I was, you know, worried about getting picked on, and you know, the same sort of motivation. Uh, yeah, and when we sparred, it was no contact. So you know, you spar, and then there would be judges, and if that was considered, it would have been a lethal blow. Then they'd raise the flag, and you got the point, and that's how. And then I moved. I moved actually because my kung fu teacher killed his father. That's a whole fucking crazy story. But um, so when I was 15, we moved to Connecticut. I didn't move because he killed his father. We we moved shortly after he killed his father, and I'd stopped studying kung fu because of that whole thing. Anyway, we moved to Connecticut, and uh, I decided I wanted to continue, and I went to a taekwondo school, and um, immediately broke my hand because I tried to block a kick uh, open-handed. Oh, and it broke it with the kick? Huh? Yeah, because I got, I got confused because the kung fu was all these open-handed monkey yeah. paw moves and all that. And in Taekwondo, it was, you know, kicks coming, straight fist down to block. I went straight down with my hand open. Taekwondo. Yeah. It's, you know, block, forearm block instead of the circular and all that. Yeah. Very, very different approaches, you know. But, yeah, that was the end of my martial arts stuff. Really, when the guy killed his father, that, that sort of soured it Did he kill him me. with Taekwondo? Uh, no, that was the Kung Fu. It was... Um, a Pukalan Kung Fu is an Okinawan style. There was oh, so it was a death match almost. They yeah they they the, the father was the world leading you know the highest ranked in that particular style, and um, his son was twenty six. Do you know um, Joe Rogan? Do you know who he is? I told this story on Joe Rogan's podcast once, and I got an email from a guy. It just tells you the reach of these podcasts. It's so crazy. Uh, I got an email from a guy a few days later. It said, oh, yeah, I heard you talking about that case on Joe Rogan. I was the prosecuting attorney in western Pennsylvania when that happened. And I, I dealt with that case. And, you know, he, he filled me in on some of the details that I couldn't remember or didn't know at the time. Crazy. So he didn't really mean to kill him. Just... No, well, well, no. He, what happened was... The son came home. The son's name was Roy. He came home and found his father beating up his mother. Uh. So he intervened in that. The father turned on him. It turned into this thing. There were apparently samurai swords on the wall. Those came down. The police found them bent at right angles. And, I, you know, I don't know how you bend a samurai sword. But the, the son was, you know, had 200 and some stitches required and including in his esophagus somehow. So he didn't get convicted of anything. Eventually he got off on self-defense. I would think. But it was like a three or four year, you know. Yeah, typical. And the school burned down. Make your life miserable. Right, yeah, yeah. It was pretty intense. Um, But another one of these situations, you said you were held at gunpoint as a hostage. Like, what the hell? How are you getting in all this trouble, man? You're a mild-mannered hippie. What's going on? My theory on it is that, I don't know, I don't want to sound boastful, but I think that the universe has put me in these positions and thrown these situations at me because I am able to handle them. Mm -hmm. I don't panic. Right. And I don't get afraid, you know? So when everybody else is panicking, I'm like, you know, right. 
So I was a, when I was 16, I got a job as a counselor at an underprivileged children's camp in the mountains in Colorado. Mm. So all the kids that went there were like either black or Hispanic from, you know, urban right. Denver. And they hadn't ever probably even seen the woods. Yeah. So I really liked the job and they really liked it. The kids were great. Well, one of the kids, his father was doing time in prison and he escaped from prison. And he got the family together, maybe a teenage other son, 13 or something, who was driving the car, and his wife and Popo, which we- Popo's the kid who was Popo's, at your camp? No, Popo's this big guy. Anyway, we'll get to Popo. Right. So it was my day off and my friend's day off too. So we took our tent and rather than stay in the camp, you know, in our cabins, and we wanted to camp in the woods. So we just took a tent not far, you know, half a mile from the camp, a quarter of a mile even. We set our tent up and we went to bed. And in the middle of the night, I'm awakened by this flashlight in my face. And I get out of the tent. And I open my eyes and here's this guy with a flashlight and a 45. And um, he was the escaped convict. So we both get out of the tent and there's all these people standing around the dark, his family in an old car parked there. And he turns to my friend and says, I want you to go back to the camp and get my son, Juan, or whatever his name was. And if I hear you coming back with anybody except him, I'm going to shoot your friend. And he's got a gun to my head, you know, a 45 automatic. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, great, I'm going to die here in the woods, because clearly they're not going to let the kid go, you right. know, there's right. no way that's happening. Right. And so he's going to hear him coming down the road. and. So I just kept really alert, and I just kept watching him, because he was watching me real closely. And then sure enough, I hear a big commotion going on at the end of the road, and you can see flashlights in the air, and my lanterns, you know, just what yeah. I expected. Right. Happen. Everybody's coming. Right. And I watched till he, I watched him real closely until he, I saw him, his attention got distracted for a minute like that, you know? And I bolted. I just bolted into the woods. And boom, boom, behind me, you know, is he shooting? And I'll never know if he was shooting in the air or trying to hit me. Right. But I just kept thinking, jog left, jog right, jog yeah. left, yeah. jog right, you know, just, and he didn't hit me. And then they all jumped in the car and zoomed up this curvy, it's all dirt roads, right? And there's like a cliff almost. And they zoom up this road and make this turn, but he, the 13 year old kid's driving and he almost goes over the cliff. So the car is literally going like this. Like teetering now on the Now the highway patrol is showing up because they had called yeah. from the camp and right. all the camp people are there. And I'm strangling my friend because he almost got me killed, right? Well, what should he have done? <clears throat> Not tell anyone anything. I don't know. He shouldn't have handled the way he should. I don't know. Yeah. But I said, you almost got me shot. Yeah. So anyway, they get everybody, they're arresting everyone. And the cops are starting to drive away. And then one of the, I think the 13-year-old kid says, but wait, Popo is still in the car. And we said, Popo? What the hell's Popo? He said, he's in the car. So we said, there's nobody in the car. He said, no, look under the dash. So we went and looked under the dash, and there's this guy like a bean bag shoved in, uh, you know, in, that, in the floor well. The seat was pushed all the way back, and he, he had been obese song, he couldn't walk. And so we were like, how the, fuck, how the hell do we get him out of the car? 
without the car rolling down the cliff. So we have people holding the car, and we're trying to pull him out. Well, he's drunk and belligerent, so he's got his arm wrapped on the steering wheel, and he's like hitting at us with a crutch. And he's like an amputee? No. No, no he he's just fat. But, oh, obese, yeah. and he's wedged in between the seat of the He's wedged in under the, <laughs> under the glove box. <laughs> We finally got it. We finally managed to get him out and drop him in the middle of the road like a beanbag, literally. Uh -huh. And he was cursing and swearing, and you couldn't get near him because he'd swipe out with you. He had a crutch, you know, and he'd swing his crutch and hit you hard with it, you know. So that's the Popo story. Wow. And I don't know why Ariel always liked that one, but, <laughs> but yeah, it's been. What can I say? <laughs> What do, you, what do you got there? Oh, that's here. I was this. just looking at some things like that, that she didn't even mention you yeah. know, that I thought were really like I, I put myself through college playing pool as a pool hustler. Oh, really? Yeah, because I saw Paul Newman and the yeah, hustler, the hustler. Yeah, it's a great so movie. Cool, except for his thumbs getting broken. Oh, yeah. Jackie Gleason. Wasn't, oh, yeah, no, that he was, played Minnesota Fast. Right, right. But no, what you do when you're a pool hustler, you can't let them know you're better than they right. are. You have, so you have to Gotta act. lose a few. Yeah, and if yeah. you get showy and show off, that's when you get your thumbs broken. Right, right. So I learned that trick, and I put myself to school. Everyone knows where they were when Kennedy died. I was playing pool hmm. to pay my tuition. But my pool career hit its peak when I got to play the world champ. I played Luther Lassiter, Wimpy Lassiter. Hmm. He came to town. And he came to the pool hall, which I was managing at that point, and um, he said, I'll play a game, straight pool. Um, Nine ball? No, straight pool, Oops. call your shot. Oh, eight ball. Um, kind of, but no, a straight pool you, is, you, I mean, you can I, shoot them in any order. Right. But you, you, have to st you, you have to call your shot and the pocket it's going to go in and right. you run the table until there's one ball left. And then they rack up the other 14. And then the idea is you sink that last ball and break the rack and keep going. Ah. Let's just call your shot. And you That's win by pool. putting in more balls than the other guy. Yeah. Ah, okay. And you said, we'll play to 50 and I'll spot you 30 balls and I'll break which is a great deal because you don't want to break on yeah. that game because it's almost impossible to put one in. Some players can do it. But when you, you try to hit this ball here, you have to, to make it legal, two balls have to hit the cushions. So you hit this ball, it goes and hits the cushion, it comes right back. The, the, this one comes right, right back and then the cue is just rolling the corners. So you're not really trying to break it wide open. You you just not at no because right. you have to call your shot. Oh, you have to call it on the break as well. Yeah, you don't get a credit no, no, on the it's break. It's not like eight ball. Oh, <clears throat> no, right. it's straight pool. This is the game that right. they really play. Right. So, so he I'm broke. Like, he's going to he's going to give me thirty balls to fifty. Okay. So all you got to do is run twenty and right? you win. Right. That's yeah. a rack and a half. Yeah. And and he's breaking. So he broke, and he left me an opening. And I ran a rack, I ran about, I ran 14 balls, I think, and then I missed the breaking of the rack when it was set back up, and he ran 50 balls and the game was over. Wow. But yeah. I got to play the world champ. Yeah, and you came close. Well, <laughs> hardly. If you had made that, you know, if you would made that one, making the ball and, and get and the rack. And another five. 
Well, but you would have, because you would have had Maybe. plenty of opportunities. The pressure was on. I was really nervous. Yeah. I, just, you know, yeah. I was a good player. But what was your what was your sort of best quality as a pool player? The long straight shot, or curves, or backspin, or the the, the tight cuts. Tight, yeah, angles like into the side pocket. Yeah, if the ball's here's the side pocket and here's the ball and here's yeah, your cue. Right, just trying to, to get that just barely. Just kiss it. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. Those are really satisfying when you, you hit the ball hard, but it there's so little contact that the the movement's very light. So little, or you're gonna miss. Yeah, the, yeah. That's a very I, satisfying I was, I was shot. Pretty good at bank shots too. See, but I've never been good at bank shots. Do you calculate it or do you just see it? I just see it. You just see the angle. I mean, people, you see them get down yeah. and do this, yeah. but I know, I just... You just feel it. I just feel yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm a moderate pool player. I grew up with pool tables in the house, so I've oh, spent I a lot of time shooting. Oh, you and I would have fun playing pool. Yeah, I enjoy playing pool Because I'll bet you're good, too, if you had a pool table. You know, I'm good if I, there's a certain amount of alcohol and marijuana that when I'm, when they mix at a right point, where I've had a little, not too much weed, but a little bit, just to focus, and a little beer to sort of relax, then you're unbeatable. I'm, I'm I'm beatable, but I'm good. I mean, right, I can right, run, right. I can win a game, and you'll never get a shot. Right. Maybe. Um, but then a little too much beer, then I lose it. Or a little, you know, there's there's just a zone. You your own I did, you know, for years, yeah. I got a beautiful Italian one with an ivory joint and green oh, silk hand. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, you always know you're in trouble when a guy brings his own stick. That's why you don't ever do it if you're hustling. <laughs> yeah, you want to use a house stick. Yeah, and you yeah. want to make them think that they're... Oh, that was such a lucky shot. I yeah. didn't think I'd make that, yeah. you know? Double or nothing. Oh, all right. All yeah, right. I know I can beat this guy. <laughs> Yeah. Well, see, there's another area where you're going to get your ass kicked if you're not careful. You got to. I had. I was shooting pool with a guy. I lived in the East Village in New York for a while in the '80s. It's pretty rough, New York. This is yeah. pre-Giuliani and all that. And um, some Times Square was so rough too. Oh yeah, yeah. Had an edge, but the, those were the days. Uh, I used to. I was in my 20s, I guess, my late 20s, and uh, I would. I would get ready to, I played at this place, Lucy's. She was like Polish or Czech or something. And there are all these Eastern Europeans who would play and, you know, go there. And, and um, you know, it was a chalkboard, you put your name up and then you just played as long as you were winning. So I'd, I had a, a water pipe. I would put on my coat, this was in winter, put on my coat, get, get everything ready, my Walkman, everything ready, hit this water pipe and then walk right out the door. Because if I hit the water pipe and then I'd, I'd be 15 minutes like finding my keys and my coat and you know, I'd lose the, right, <laughs> you know right, what I mean? Right. So I'd, I'd be totally ready. I'd be in my coat and everything, hit this water pipe, walk out the door, listen into some good music, like five blocks walk to this bar, get into the bar, get a beer, put my name on the board. And if there were only five or six people on the board, when I came up, I would be in my zone. In the zone. I was there. And then I'd just fucking rock. And uh, when so it's I was, a good game. I love it. I it's love a gentleman's it. game. And now it's, they, they kind of, it's become kind of seedy, but it was always a gentleman's oh, game. And, and like the big pool halls where there are 20 or 30 tables and the, you know, it's, yeah. it's a classy, I mean, it, it's, I don't know. It's kind of, in some, some people see it as like bowling, you know, whatever, but I, no. I think pool is elegant. 
the sound of it. And if you had one growing up, you probably had one of the good tables. Oh, slate. It was probably two-inch yeah. slate. Yeah. It had leather pockets. Yeah. And they grabbed yeah. the balls like a catcher's yeah. mitt. You know, there's plastic yeah, pockets. Yeah, nothing's bouncing right out. out. Yeah. If you shoot no, too that's hard. That's bullshit. Yeah. I automatically. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really enjoy it. You can it. tell a pool player by his bridge. Huh. You know, you go up to play somebody and they go like this. And they put this in your thing. Yeah, this and their hand shaking. Well, and you stuff. know you're going to beat him, you yeah. know, if you've got a good solid bridge, yeah. you know. Yeah. And another thing you can tell is people do this. If they spread their fingers out, you know you're playing a serious player. Yeah. Because it's so stable. you got a you tripod. Know, here you've yeah. still got the little rock. Yeah. When somebody goes like that and then they get down low, yeah. think, hmm. Hmm, they're eyeing it attention. up. Yeah, yeah. It's also sexy, I mean, women who play pool. Something really sexy about a, a woman. You got the cleavage, you got the... <laughs> remember the Playboy clubs back in the yeah, day? Yeah, sure. I was a member, and they always had pool tables, and they always had bunnies. I never beat one of those bunnies at pool. <laughs> they were good. I'll bet. I mean, they, they must have practiced like crazy. Yeah, yeah, well, the off hours, hanging And around. it didn't have anything to do with the distraction of the cleavage or anything. They were yeah. just hot players. Yeah. I was like, I can beat this woman. Yeah. Mm -mm. So what have you been doing? You, you've been in herbal, uh, My career uh, natural been, health. For and... 42 years, I've been a consultant in the natural products industry. I started by being the first marketing director for Celestial Seasonings. Oh, the, the tea, tea company, yeah. Tea. Huh. I started in 74 with them. And I was with them till 1980. Yeah. And by then I'd learned so much. This goes back to college. I knew I never needed a degree, and I didn't, because I, I was smart and I learned a lot. Yeah. And um, uh, I learned enough on the job in marketing to start a marketing consultation firm. And I took Celestial from one million to 14 and a half million in the five years I was there. Hmm which was almost 100% growth rate a year. That's incredible. It was pretty, yeah. pretty good. And then I thought, well, you know, there's all these companies out there that have no idea how to break into the marketplace, and I just have learned it all, and I've got great connections. Yeah. And so I kind of specialized in um, foreign products, because yeah. I like working with foreign products, because they have no idea how to break into the American marketplace. Mm. And then one day, I was at a health food show in Anaheim, and my wife had just started snoring and was it gotten to the point where I was about ready to start sleeping in the upstairs bedroom. Yeah. I mean, it happens. It can ruin yeah. relationships. Yeah. So I'm at the health food show, and I see this acupressure-based anti-snoring ring that you just put on your little finger at night and take it off in the morning. It affects your heart-lung meridians, and so you breathe better. And you don't, um... so I saw this little sterling silver ring that has little raised bumps and you put it on the little finger which affects the heart-lung meridian and allows you to breathe more openly so you don't snore. I figured 40 bucks, you know, I'll gamble 40, 45 bucks. See, I bought one, I took it home, put it on my wife Susan. She stopped snoring that night. Really? Never snored again. Man, I've been looking for anti-snoring well, stuff that's for years. Well, it impressed me so much that I tracked down the people I got it from. I got the, an exclusive distribution rights. Now other people do sell them, but I still have the name, snornomar.net, so that's where they go. Huh. But um, 
then I started to get a media out of it, and it became a huge business. Really? Yeah. So they actually I, work. I, if that, I yeah, you, you gave me one here, a, a big one, a large. Is it adjustable? Yeah. Okay, so I can bend it down yeah. without breaking. Um, so it actually works. I'm going to try yeah, this tonight. No. Um, open part on the top. Let's see. Oh, they open up. Yeah. And the, huh. the bump on the inside. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, Does it fit? Because... Um, yeah, let's see. Yeah, it... I guess. Yeah. Is that the way it's supposed to fit? Yeah. Yeah, that is. It, it could maybe be a little tighter. You might want yeah, to push I'll, I'll the prongs a little. I'll just squeeze it, yeah. But give it a try. It, yeah, um, thank you. I've been doing this for 15 years now, and I have sold thousands and thousands and thousands of rings. We have a money-back guarantee, hmm. and my return rate is less than 1%. Really? It works on like 85% of the people. Wow, men and women. Men and women. Snornomore.net. That's crazy. Well, if it if it works, man, that's that's they, they a really some, yeah, important thing. Because well, you're right. It's, yeah. I snore. I, I stopped um, eating dairy January first, so two months ago, roughly, um, because I, I was tired of snoring and I was having trouble sleep. I was too much mucus. Yeah, you get the mucus, and and in the morning, and you're yeah, nose. exactly, and it's hard to breathe sometimes, and you sort of wake up feeling like you're suffocating, and yeah, it, and it's helped, but I, I still snore sometimes. Yeah. It's funny because Warwick's, oh, I shouldn't maybe say that if she hears this, but Warwick's aunt was here. Did you meet her? No, I don't think she, so. I think no. she may have been here the night you came. No. But anyway, she asked me, she said she did, wanted to know if she had snored the night before. She spent two nights in the bedroom next to mine. And I said, no. I said, why, do you snore? And she says, yeah, I think I do snore. And I said, well, let me give you one of my anti-snoring rings. So I did. And that night, the second night, I was lying in bed, I could hear her snoring too. And I thought, oh my God, it made her start snoring. <laughs> it triggered it. <laughs> but the next morning I said, so you wore a snoring ring last night? She said, no, I forgot to put it uh, on. I said, oh, thank good. God, because you snored like crazy. <laughs> and she said, oh, I did? She was, you know? Yeah, well, snoring's such a horrible thing, you know? Because it really bothers me if I'm trying to sleep and someone else is snoring. So. It's not something where, you know, you say, ah, it doesn't matter. It's no big thing. No, Just, it's really annoying. But and then you can only but push then your I do it, you know? know? So it's horrible to do something that you know is so bothersome and you can't stop. You know, I, I hate bothering people, but, right. you know, it, it's... Well, I think this, I think 30% of American adults snore, so that's like 40 million Snoring. Only 30? I would have thought it was more than Maybe that. Maybe it's 40%. And I, I, most men snore, don't they? I thought. I don't know, but a lot of them do. Yeah. And women, sort of postmenopausal, it kicks in a lot. Yeah, yeah that's when Susan started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's pretty common. But she got written up in magazines and everything. She was like, they test patient zero, you know, and Women's World and First for Women. They were all refer uh, USA Today. They were all writing about her. and. Which was great for because the of the 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 ring thing. Yeah, really. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, interesting. All right. So uh, snorenomore.net. Check it out. Yeah, I don't do ads on the show, but no, no. If I have someone on who who's 
got you know written an interesting book or made a film or something we always talk about their work and so this fits right into that well and it might help somebody who knows yeah save a relationship and you've got the money back guarantee anyway so right if it doesn't work and you know it says 30-day money back guarantee I think on the website hmm. but people return rings to me after two years I give them their money back <laughs> it stopped working my money back guarantee means that to me you know? yeah yeah well, that's cool that's cool I, maybe it doesn't even say that uh, but anyway well listen I I could chat with you all day this has uh, been really fun I'd like to hear your stories because I know you've got as many as I do oh my god yeah well you can listen to the other episodes of the podcast and you can hear my stories I actually do uh, a particular you know most of the the podcast episodes are chatting with people um, but then I people were asking me like you know tell more of your stories from traveling and prison and you know all these adventures so I make sort of a separate uh, category called Toma, which is talking out my ass. So that's just me telling my story. So I'm not interrupting people or dominating the conversation with another one of my stories. So I sort of made a separate place for those. I so. can find that online. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'll show you. Well, listen, thank you. Thanks thank for you. doing this. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's a pleasure. It. Yeah. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially able go to patreon.com and search for tangentially speaking you enter your credit card tell them you want to give me a buck five bucks 20 bucks 30 bucks 50 bucks 200 bucks and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again uh if you don't have uh the money to do that that's fine don't worry about it tell your friends about the podcast write a review on itunes or just enjoy the podcast it doesn't matter i want to thank basin and range for that intro music the song's called bright side of the sun and you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Dot com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, chrisryanphd.com, tangentiallyspeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that's Shore Design T-shirts. 
t-shirts. They are fantastic. I know I say this is an ad-free podcast uh, and this could be construed as an ad, but Sure Design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception. Bennett, who was the dude there, decided he was going to support the podcast. He sent me a bunch of shirts uh, at an extreme discount to uh, help us out. Since Bennett died, the people who took over SureDesignT-shirts.com have decided to continue giving us the same deal that Bennett gave us. So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in Civilized to Death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're going to say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. I don't want to give the end away, but we're going to die one day. Your body is an animal. Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground